Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we irreversibly discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations, as usual, revel in adding interiority to characters whose exteriority was primarily on display in a film. This time, though, the interiority is wild and unpredictable. Never could a viewer guess that E.T. wants to take Mary to bed so badly or that the government doctor trying to revive E.T. hates him with every fiber of his being. <laughs> Novelizations boldly adhere to the plot of a film while morphing and reshaping the motivations of every single character. We're your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm John Goodman. And I'm Hannah Blackman. E.T. The Extraterrestrial is a 1982 science fiction film directed by Steven Spielberg. It follows Yay. the plight of E.T., an alien botanist stranded on Earth after his co-workers make an example of him being tardy by flying off without him. E.T. E. is taken in by Elliot, a young boy whose youthful wonder allows him to see past the alien's grotesque appearance and embrace his kind soul. Um, worth noting that this novelization makes a point that Elliot himself is pretty grotesque. <laughs> Wild. Yes, yes, um, uh, absolutely. <laughs> no one, no one is pretty in this book except Mary. <laughs> as E.T.'s as e. health mysterious deteriorates, mysteriously deteriorates, so does the boys, and the two must work together to get the wearied traveler home before his unraveling takes nearby flora and fauna alike down with him. The novelization of E.T. was written by William Kotzwinkle, based on a screenplay by Melissa Matheson. It was published by Simon & Schuster in 1982, for real this time. Yeah, was yours actually Simon & Schuster this time, Hannah? I don't know. Didn't look. Let me look. Continue reading. For, for those of you who did not listen to the, the E.T. Jr. novelization episode, <laughs> yeah. Hannah had the exact same book with the exact same page numbers from a different publisher. Yeah, it was a UK weird. publisher, and so it was. Um, I was like, this book's crazy, and everyone was like, no, it's not. You, you have weird no, stuff it's, in there. No, it's normal. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. have Britishisms. Yes. I was like, oh, no, I have, a, I have a Berkeley book edition. Mark, what's that? What, which one do you have? I have the Putnam hardcover edition. Uh, so uh, I so, oh yeah, hardcover that, that's on eBay somewhere. So uh, yeah, I've made lots of notes as you can see. Um, yeah, I've also got. I, I know we we might talk about this later. I've got the wrong edition of the Book of the Green Planet. I've got the other one on the way as well. So I also got yeah, the wrong yeah. edition of that. So I mean, I then I got the right one, but you know, just but you, people you learn and you grow. You know. Both of these have yeah. like a yeah, yeah. junior novelization version oh, okay. by the same author. Tricky. So tricky. Yeah, uh, Mark, this might stick out less to you than it did to us, but uh, Hannah's book just had a bunch of like Britishes. So yeah, uh, just, did they hire yeah. something to add you to color and words like that all the way through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yes, yeah. yes. They they paid top dollar, Probably, which I pro assume dollar has a U in it. Did they did they refer to um did they ref did they refer to M and M's and Reese's Pieces in there because in 1982 I don't think we had them. I remember reading this as a kid and thinking, "What the hell are M and M's?" Uh, mm. And I, we did, we just didn't have that those candy, oh. as you say, in the UK. They're here now. We even have a 
M&M store in Leicester Square in London, which, you know, you can smell it half a mile away, the chocolate. Uh, but, wow. um, yeah, at the time, it was <laughs> it was unfamiliar to me. So um, I just wonder if they... Because the, the most similar sweet was something called Smarties. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, I, I don't know if they replaced it with that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The difference between M&Ms and Smarties is Smarties suck. Well, They're are terrible. they... <laughs> these might be different Smarties. <laughs> oh. Are your Smarties like a... <laughs> Are your Smarties chocolate? Because right our Smarties are this sort of like chalky, um, sugary uh, uh, thing. They're they're tart. Yeah, they're tart. Let me just let me just make something clear, uh, and not to insult <laughs> everyone in the great nation of the United States of America, but your chocolate <laughs> is <laughs> awful. It is absolutely do- you don't use milk in it. You don't. It needs to be proper milk chocolate. Come to Europe, have some proper chocolate, see what it's like, then take it back with you. Good to know. So uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not. Ta- I'm not having that. I'm not having you <laughs> dismarties this early on in the show. And I'm also, sorry. American smarties are fine if you're into that. So chill, guys. Uh, Mark, not to fetishize the Britishness too much, but what what do you call candy? Sweets. It's oh. Sweeties. Okay, that yeah. makes way more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My edition yeah, yeah. of the other book of ET did refer to them just as sweets. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. No wow. brand name at all. Because how oh, fascinating. Yeah. The movie they're not M and M's, right? No, they're Reese's Pieces. Well, yeah, I've got a whole thing about that. You know, I don't okay. know where you want to start. Let me just talk to, yeah. about Cotswinkle for a second. <laughs> oh, great. I'm and then tell everyone who Mark is. And then <laughs> I got barely anything on Cotswinkle, so this will be quick. Um, all right. <clears throat> who is William Cotswinkle? Which usually we flow right from what Hannah said. So if you've forgotten, he's the author of the book. (laughs) (laughs) William Kotzwinkel is a novelist, children's author, and screenwriter best known for his novelization of E.T., the extraterrestrial. His children's works include Elephant Boy, A Story of the Stone Age, as well as Walter the Farting Dog, Walter the Farting Dog, Trouble at the Yard Sale, Rough Weather Ahead for Walter the Farting Dog, Walter the Farting Dog Goes on a Cruise, and the conclusion to the series, Walter the Farting Dog, colon, banned from the beach. Are the, um, are the film and television rights to the Walter the Farting Dog book still available? Does anyone know? <laughs> I mean, honestly. It's a rich universe. It's got Netflix written all over it, frankly. <laughs> yes. Uh, he also wrote the story for Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, upon which the screenplay was based. The novelization of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 was, of course, written by Joseph Locke, uh, who is Ray Garten, who we know as the writer of Good Burger. And just to make enemies of authors, I guess, I'm just going to say, maybe it should have gone to Kotzwinkel. Maybe he thought adapting his own work was too much for him. He didn't want to do it. Mm. If only we had the perspective (laughs) of someone on adapting one's own work into a novelization, but obviously we're up a creek. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest today, host of the podcast, The Bestseller Experiment, a podcast which investigates what exactly makes a bestseller a bestseller. He said that with a question mark. What exactly makes a bestseller a bestseller? (laughs) Screenwriter of the upcoming film Unwelcome, as well as of the science fiction film Robot Overlords, which he also novelized. Also the author of the Witches of Woodville series, which so far comprises The Crow Folk, Babes in the Woods, and the just this past week released third installment, The Ghost of Ivy Barn. Mark Stay, first off, how are you doing in general this day, life trajectory, things trending up, things trending down? 
I am tickety-boo, thank you for asking. It's wonderful to be here. I, I loved your uh, episode with Gavin talking about the Aliens novelisation. And I thought, I, I'm such a big fan of novelizations. I grew up, you know, in the 80s devouring them. And um, this book we're going to discuss today in particular blew my tiny little mind. So I definitely want to come back to it. Um, but yeah, I'm very good. Thank you so much for asking. Delighted to be here with you fine people. Well, it is wonderful to have you. Let's let's jump right in there. So, what is sort of was your relationship to novelizations as a child, and 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 further on in life, and and which ones specifically made an impression on you? Well, uh, looking at your youthful faces, I'm guessing I'm considerably older than you. So, I I grew up in an era where a film was released. And then if you were lucky, about four years later, it would turn up on VHS. Mm. And then if you were lucky, another four years on from that, it would appear on television in the UK, cut to ribbons by the censor with all the good bits <laughs> taken out. So novelizations were essential, totally essential, because you... Also, my family didn't go to the movies that much. I, I grew up in uh, North London till I was about eight years old, quite close to cinemas, saw Star Wars and Empire and, and stuff like that. And, and then we moved to... Uh, a place called Surrey, suburban, and there wasn't a movie theatre for miles around. And so I was very reliant on the VHS rental store down the road. And um, so, you know, you'd hear about movies and wouldn't see them for years. I'd very often read the novelisation before I saw the movie. Uh, so I love them and I love what they bring uh, the extra stuff that they bring. I love that different perspective that they have, those extra scenes that they might have. Uh, I Probably the first one I ever read, well, Star Wars, definitely. I've still got a copy on the shelf there that I picked up from a, a school sort of jumble-jumble sale when I was, you know, eight years, six, six, seven, eight years old or whatever. It's like hardcover book club edition with all the photos falling out. Uh, so I devoured all those. Donald F. Glutz, Empire Strikes Back is still, you know, because it had... I think it's the first place you hear that Obi-Wan and Vader fought and there was lava and he left him for dead. It's the first oh, place you ever heard that. Wow. wow. Yeah, so little things like that. Uh, I just absolutely adored. I went through a big phase of reading a ton of Star Trek tie-ins as well, the you know, Vonda McIntyre and people like that. Just terrific stuff. Um, so, yeah, it was some... And E.T.'s an interesting one because I've, uh, I didn't see E.T. on its first run in the cinema. Uh, and I was the right age. I would have been nine, eight, nine years old. Uh, but I remember my uncle brought round a pirate VHS of E.T. to watch. And it was te it was unwatchable. It was just it was snow. It was dark. You couldn't understand anything. And of course, the film start when the film starts. It's so dark. It's all in the dark. There are flashlights everywhere. And, and we gave up after about 20, which is why I loathe to this day pirate material mm. i you know i always want mm -hmm. the full legit thing you know so um so i never got to see it on its first run so you'd see et everywhere you see i did read the book the book was my first um you know foray into et world uh and you saw enough clips to sort of piece together what, what it was about and then I, I did see it on vhs but i did see the cinema re-release which was mm, probably 10 years later so then i'm a teenager i'm you know male teenager trying to be cool uh and sitting there trying not to blub my eyes out at the end of it uh, because it you know it gets me right here and i think it's one of spielberg's best movies i think it's um it came in an extraordinary time in his career when he still had something to prove and uh the performance in, in it especially the kids 
are astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Melissa Matheson's screenplay. It's interesting she didn't write much after that. I think the only film she really did after that was the BFG. She did a film called The Black Stallion before it. Um, her writing, I mean, if you've written E.T., quit. A BFG you know, from quit. a while ago, right? Not the not the one from 15 years ago or the whatever. Spielberg one. The BFG from just Spielberg's live action BFG. Oh, which is relatively recent. Yeah, I think it's the last thing she wrote. She wrote before she died died far too young sadly and um her script is just you know amazing hits every beat it i i just love it it's a great film it's not a film i can watch that often because it gets me in the feels it's you know and it's um it's uh, i i absolutely love it and this novelization um I'm not here to mock. I think this is a work. There's some. Let's be honest. This is batshit crazy. But there's some. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's it's, some. It's wild. Weird, weird stuff in it. <laughs> but the choices made in here, I think, are extraordinary. And writing novelizations. I mean, they're often written under great duress. Uh, if you're on assignment like this, you probably haven't seen the film. And I, I, I have mm-hmm. a big feeling that Cotswinkle didn't see the film because there's stuff in here that was later cut from the movie and characters like Lance who will come to who's not in the movie at all who feels like a first draft character mm-hmm. that you go no actually Lance. we don't need him at all get, get him out there um, yeah no Lance in the movie John uh, so, doesn't you know, know just to say John doesn't know because we do this sometimes yeah. John has not seen E.T. but he has read this book so this is John, my first experience John, with the story oh what must this be like uh, for you, you know? this is extraordinary <laughs> oh my god so yeah it's um you, you know so if you're if you're a writer you often haven't seen the finished film you're probably working an older version of the screen but you might get some stills or concept art and you very often have to deliver in a matter of weeks wow. uh, a lot of time novelists get six to eight weeks maybe tops if they're lucky uh, and that's to exacting expectations as well so i mean Cotswinkle, um I, I, you know, he's obviously award-winning author, you know, very prolific at this point, uh, given kind of possibly seen as a safe pair of hands to deliver, you know, an engaging page-turning book. And then he turns in this absolutely subversive, crazy, (laughs) weird choices on every single page uh, novelization, which I I absolutely love. So um, subversive is the perfect word for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. John, let, let's let's jump to you for a second. What is your impression of this book, having only read it, well, it not did, having seen the movie? Yeah, it made me very curious about the movie. I obviously I'm aware of ET. You know, <laughs> like I've seen what the little guy looks like. I've seen you know him zooming across the sky in front of the moon. You know, uh, ET phone home. But uh, I, he's definitely different than how I expected him. He was my my biggest <laughs> surprise. Uh, I didn't. He's he's kind of a creep in this, uh, which. I don't yes, know if that's in the film. Kind of. um, yeah, icky little dude. Yeah, in a way that like you can still like him and like you want him to get home, but he is like um, he's a little unsavory. Uh, which I was, I was, my main takeaway was this was I, as I was going through that kind of thing, and and the characterization of the other characters that. Um, uh, I, I guess I was wondering throughout how much of this is added from the novels. So with E.T. being a creep, Elliot, uh, I really like. Um, 
Kotzwinkel's early description of him as a twerp. He has this whole passage twerp. being like, Elliot was a twerp. Like, this guy sucks. He Elliot cheats was a guy games. who would grow up to be pushed in front of a train. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. so brutal. Yeah. Um, which of um, him, and then also uh, Mary, Elliot's mom, um, is portrayed as just like, like, you definitely relate to her, you like her, but she's portrayed as being like, kind of shallow and like, definitely like in over she her head. She hates her Dealing kids. with children. Kind of a little vapid. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, just coming from, uh, for instance, the sixth sense which is a similar like single mom raising a weird kid uh set up in that it's very like <laughs> oh she is so put upon and such a like a hero for doing what she's doing and the kid is like so troubled but so sweet and it was kind of fun of like yeah no these people like they kind of suck like they're not they're not great they're not perfect but in a way that like don't we all you know don't we all kind of suck uh so i liked that and i was wondering yeah how much of that is from the film how much of that is is um Kotzwinkel's take Oh, it's all Cotswink. <laughs> this is um, there's no Spielberg in this book. <laughs> no, it's there's no magic and wonder. Uh, this is this is the whole subversive thing. I mean, it's it's um, this is why I think he hadn't seen the film mm. because uh, on the page, Elliot and his siblings they're they're just obnoxious. But I think Henry Thomas, the actor who plays Elliot in the movie, he gives it so much heart that you fall in love with him instantly. There's there's a famous audition video where you see Henry Thomas auditioning and he basically cries on cue and he breaks your heart right there. And Spielberg, you hear Spielberg off camera, he offers him the role on the wow. spot. He says, you got, you got wow. the part, kid. It's a great video. You look it up. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, there had been plenty of great kid performances before E.T., but few kids had carried a film like the trio in E.T. I mean, you've got Drew Barrymore and Robert McNaughton as well there. They're all great. And Spielberg's genius is he got great performances out of all of them. That is so hard mm. to do. Mm -hmm. Getting one kid to perform in front of camera is difficult. Getting three to do it at the same time is nigh on impossible. So to get those performances from a trio of kids like that and all the other supporting kids, the Dungeons and Dragons kids and, and the gang and, and Greg, who is also a pervert in this book as well, um, is uh, a sister is, is, hater. Oh, my God. Well, sister <laughs> abuser. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't think there had been a child performance as good as Henry Thomas before E.T. Before e. I mean, maybe Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon, but then she was working with her dad and there's a natural report. There's a British film called uh, Kez, directed by Ken Loach, and there's a kid in that, David Bradley, who's incredible. And it, but he's basically playing himself. It's a naturalistic performance. Um, but by Hollywood standards, I, th I think Henry Thomas just knocks this out of the park. So if you're Cotswinkle and you see this whiny kid on the page, <laughs> of, co of course you're going to write him as a twerp. And of course he, he sort of relegates his siblings to, to minor roles. And the, that trio is so at the forefront mm. of uh, the movie and they're kind of in the background here. And what... Kotze, he refers to himself as Kotze oh. on his blog. Uh, <laughs> wow. he, he makes the, he makes the genius idea to give us the point of view. Because when you're writing anything, you think, okay, what's the point? What's who's my protagonist? What's the point of view mm -hmm. character? Who do I want to tell the story through? He picks the most overlooked character in the film, which is Mary, played by Dee Wallace, who is brilliant in the film. She's just amazing in the film, and the character with the fewest lines, E.T. So you take this weird, these people who really are supporting i mean et obviously is the title character but he's um you know it's all seen through elliot it's all about him and elliot so it becomes about because he goes through their p mainly their pov 
it becomes about their relationship and it's right here in the blurb in the blurb it says um Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, keeping the creature from Mary on whom he has developed an all too human crush it's right there on the blurb that this is about a relationship <laughs> between an alien, a squishy alien and uh, a, a woman going through a midlife, midlife crisis <laughs> yeah, so it's um, I mean it begs the question who is this book for? because it's not, we've got the junior novelization, too, yeah. so the kids can read who is this for? So I just love that Kotzwinkel has decided to go. Screw it! I'm gonna I'm gonna do something really weird with this book and um, and push some boundaries. So yeah, it's weird. We did cover Terry Collins' uh, 20 year anniversary junior novelization of ET, which, right. as a mission statement, was for children, and mm. it's still included the phrase penis breath so <laughs> well, good people good. are not reading the the drafts of these allegedly junior novelizations it's just not happening hannah speaking of that book yes did you thought et was crazy gross in the junior novelization well i think he's gross e. period is the problem that like and he, did this but this must have movie, changed your mind he, right no he's disgusting <laughs> he's even worse like in the other junior novelization we read which is very much from elliot's point of view by the way so like it's much right. more in line with the movie um et is like a weird little gremlin you know like he's a goblin straight up and they don't describe him physically very much. And so sometimes I could be like, you know, I feel for him. I want him to go home. He's a sad little lonely fella. And the kids like him. And that's, it's all good. And then I would like turn to the image inserts and be like, ah! <laughs> like something, <laughs> something about um, the way E.T. exists is disgusting to me. And when I look at him, I want to smush it. Um, and this book, Kotzwinkel's book, is talking about his little belly like every two pages and his like long <laughs> arms and his weird fingers and his disgusting paddle feet and I'm like yeah gross and on top of that he's a little pervert so he's a million year old guy who's yeah. hanging out with children and wants to fuck their mom and it's like appalling <laughs> is horny E.T. in the movie at all? no that's no. a crazy thing to add what? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's one thing that E.T. is like, how do I gain the approval of the the lady of the house, basically? Yes. Like, if I'm going to stay here, I need her help, and so I have to somehow figure out how to get on her good side. But the book is very much like, what if we got married? What if I lived in her bed? What yeah. if I touched her all the time? What and if we could have more intimate upsetting. relations? I want to go in and see her in the shower. I There was one line, um, the, yes. uh, he was hoping for, when he's drunk, he's like going in to like barge into her taking a shower and he's hoping for cosmic finger yeah. signals of the more intimate kind. And no, no thank you, E.T. <laughs> <laughs> Don't like that. I think also there's that reference really late in the book where he references the shower as the place where the willow creature dances. Yeah. Suggesting dances, he has been yeah. regularly watching her shower. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. here's the thing, Anna. Smush. I just called you I just called you Anna. It's not it my name. Fucking Forty Abby episodes Agent in. Hosts. Um, here's the thing, Hannah. E.T. apparently also thinks he's gross, which I didn't see coming. I mean I do the there first is a- so I just Sorry, want to go. clarify for our friends here that I only got through half of this book. So if that's just so you know, when I'm only referencing the first half of the book, that's why I just ran out of time. I'm sorry. We are doing four recordings this weekend. Yeah, so it's, it's crazy. I'm doing my yeah. best. Oh, okay, boy. guys, I'm trying. 
Um, but there is a point where he's like, these human beings are gross and weird, and I am the elegant space creature. Right. I'm Which the advanced form of life, and I'm beautiful, and my little belly is what's hot about me. <laughs> and as he comes to know the humans, he's like, wait a second, wait a second. Maybe I am yucky. And that was a sad moment for me to look at him and be yeah. like, oh, no, don't get down on yourself. Like, you're fine for your deal. Like, you're a little guy. It's fine. Um, I don't want him to feel bad about his little belly. I also don't want to look at it myself. And I don't think that Mary is wrong for being like, ew. Right. <laughs> I'm on her side. Like, But logically, mm, you'd think it should be mm. mutual. Like, it reminds me of when, like, like, Jabba the Hutt is, like, lusting after Princess Leia. It's like, you should want... <laughs> to date another slug man like it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> right. quite add it feels like it's the writer projecting their own um sexual preferences onto an alien who should have their own yeah completely different their ones. own sexual preferences but also it's 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 like a human person being like i really want to fuck a clown fish right like it just doesn't <laughs> it just doesn't add up <laughs> So the first thing that tips me off to this book being kind of odd is that on page 12, E.T.'s walking around. I'm not even sure if he's been stranded yet. And he goes, you know, as for giving instruction to humanity at some seat of international government, like, could I be friends with humanity? He goes, it was out of the question when your nose was like a bastion Brussels sprout and your overall appearance was like that of an overgrown prickly pear. And he keeps hitting this over like a Mm -hmm. few pages where he's like, I love life and I love my friends, but we are ugly. <laughs> I think this might be symptomatic of, of the head hopping in the book. Now, uh, head hopping, for people who don't know, this is something that in the 80s happened all the time, which is where you would switch point of view from character to character within the same scene, on the same page, in the mm-hmm. same chapter. It's if you if you sign up to a writing course now, head hopping is seen as a capital crime. Each chapter has to be seen from one character's point of view, and mm. there will be no head hopping. Uh, but it happened a lot in the eighties. You know, Stephen King does it a lot. A lot of Terry Pratchett does it a lot. Um, but he's head hopping all over the place. So I think he's internalizing ET, and then he's stepping back. Maybe looking at the concept art that he's been sent by the studio as part of his... Okay, well, okay, he's got a squishy belly. He's got flat feet. Let's write that again. And going, God, he looks really gross. So there is this kind of weird head-hopping thing going on where he's bouncing in and out of character. I mean, even plants get... They have telepathic cucumbers, you know, which... So it sounds like a band that should be headlining the acoustic stage at Glastonbury. <laughs> but, that, you know, so the plants get point of view. Harvey the dog gets point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just weird head hopping all the way through. So you never quite... There'll be a paragraph and you'll think, okay, it's Mary. Oh, no, it's E.T. Oh, oh now it's Elliot. Whoa. It, it kind of works towards the end because you, you when E.T. and Elliot start, the, their minds start merging, it becomes more effective. But this is one of those things from the 70s and 80s particularly if you've only got a few weeks to write this and you and you you know you're in a hurry you've just got to get the words down figuring out pov is used often something you, you you can you know do on a second draft or a rewrite or whatever so i i wonder if that's symptomatic of just the time and the speed with which you know cotswinkle had to had to write it but it it, it is weird there's a lot of body dysmorphia and self-loathing and um you know, going on that's that's not entirely healthy. You'd think he'd be like, humans are gross. But instead mm. he's like, I am gross and humans are beautiful. Yeah, he gets there. 
I, I, I do like that it's um it's all plant analogies, like the it's a lot of um like vegetation language to describe E. T. I thought that was a cool choice because he has this affinity with the plants and he is this this botanist. It's always like he's looking like mm. a prickly pear or a Brussels sprout or a, you know, whatever it is. I thought that was a, a fun touch. Every time the plants try and help him out, um I loved it. Like and the plants like, No, that's a human person. It's okay. Elliot's nice, relax, he'll help you. Yes. And he's like, I don't know, he looks scary and the cucumbers are like, No, 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 it's fine. We like them. Adorable. <laughs> I mean, very early in the book, his little redwood sapling gets smushed by a car and I mm. felt unbelievable tragedy in my heart. So Yeah. yeah. It's effective writing, at least, emotionally. Uh, I have that cucumber thing. And so it is it's like maybe the first time it pops up with a plant directly speaking to him. There's a lot of language in the first 25 pages of like he was walking through and there there was like a mood to the plants or they were signaling. And then we have the line, he's watching them play Dungeons and Dragons and he's basically going, "What what is this? And it says, overwhelmed, he crept away, needing to rest his brain in the, veg- in the vegetable patch. He'd peeked into earth windows before, yes, but never from so close never partaking so intimately of the bizarre thought patterns of the people. But they are only children, said a nearby cucumber. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I, I think it's sweet. I think it's nice that E.T. gets like an avenue into our world through something he can understand. And that the perspective of the plants is also a little bit weird, as it would be. Um, I mean, as in referring to like the head hopping that Mark was talking about, I like it in this book. I like the way that we're in and out of people. It just like makes the world so full and makes every character have like such um, purpose. Even Harvey, who like just loves to chew on stuff, his only goal is like <laughs> I want to be biting. Uh, it just makes him like a rich little dog, and I'm happy to know a little bit more about him. Yeah, and the telepathy makes that makes that work well too. That it, it feels like ET yeah. is sort of head hopping as an explorer. And I really like the plants thing. I think is also just a very effective. I always like the idea with alien stuff of like to highlight the sort of arrogance of humanity, which is sort of a big theme here, that, like, the authorities are, are not going to be the people who should have E.T., of, like, what if aliens showed up on Earth and rather than being, like, take me to the United Nations, we're like, oh, no, I don't care about you guys. I want to talk to these trees. Like, I want to talk to these vegetables. Like, mm. that's what I'm interested in. Um, I thought, I just, I always think that's a very effective device. I, I kind of, initially, I kind of thought they were a, a ruthless gang of intergalactic plant thieves or eco-terrorists <laughs> going from planet to planet, stealing stealing plants. Um, but yeah, it was uh, the, the fact that he's 10 million years old as well, yeah. which is the only, I don't think you, it's never referenced in the film. You know, it's just, it, it's a throwaway line in the book and you kind of think, where did that come from? Is that something you know, sanctioned by Spielberg or is it just something that Cotswinkle's come up with? So um I have I have just to say I have invited Cotswinkle onto the bestseller experiment podcast. Oh. I emailed him a couple of days ago and he replied and said, Yeah, I'm up for this. So um he may be coming on the podcast. Uh, he's eighty three. Um oh, wow. but he's still writing. He's he's still wow. publishing. So I, I've got a whole bunch of, if you've got any unanswered questions then send them my way and uh we we'll we'll grill the What's guy. what's the timeline on that? Is it before our recording for the second book? It's oh I don't know. I haven't fixed a date yet, but it's probably going to be sometime in June. So yeah, so um, that might work out. You might come back yeah. unauthorized and be like, "I got the dirt. <laughs> I got the answers. I got the answers." Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the age of ET is a question for me because mm. watching the movie, he's very childlike. Sort of, mm-hmm. he's in a new situation. He's very wondrous along with the kids. And so, when this book is like, he's old. He's old as shit. He's the oldest million. thing in the world. Yeah. 
And um, not only is he super old, but he's old by E.T. species standards as well. He's a fully grown mm-hmm. adult E.T. Um, is another level of like, ew, man, ugh, for me. Um, and the book really hammers home that he is ancient. He is an ancient yeah. traveler. He is a wizened fellow. Like they just, it just won't shut up about how freaking old he is. And okay, Hannah, you and I, you and I are having a lot of age disagreements recently. Where you, you thought that ET had kind of kid energy in the film ET. I disagreed, and then we also argued for a while over how old Sonic the Hedgehog is. <laughs> he's like twelve. He's like twelve. I think he's like twenty-six. No, but okay. he's like sixteen. Uh, I'm not gonna do it again, he's but you're wrong. With with regards to ET's age, I think I, I, this is just anecdotally off the top of my head. I have a vague recollection that Spielberg said, yeah, he was like a junior member of the crew, Mm -hmm. that he's one of the the youngest ones, and that's why he walks away too far from the ship, that's why he gets lost, that kind of thing. So, I don't know. Again, our questions may be answered in the book of the Green Planet, the sequel, Mm -hmm. Um, so I haven't haven't dipped into that yet. But, um, yeah, I always got a sort of a young energy from him as well, which is, obviously he's perhaps centuries old in that kind of Yoda way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, he's, I a, he's of, out of his element, which kind of makes him seem yeah, yeah. childish. I, I think does a lot of the work towards that. I would prefer if he was like, yeah, like young foreign E.T. I prefer that of like, he's a junior member of the crew and maybe he's a thousand years old, but it's like, that's why he has his like curiosity that gets him in trouble and like those kinds of things. It's weird that he's 10 million. I don't know. The other ETs clearly know that it's not worth poking at the human houses. No. Nothing of interest there. They know better. I mean, they're not, they're less horny, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he does. ET does in his inner monologue. He does go, I always do this when I come to Earth. I like to look in the houses. I kind of I have a fondness for the Earthlings, yeah. and he makes it seem sort of like an academic interest. And then the moment he's stranded, he's like, "I want to have sex with them." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his perspective shifts really hard, both from sort of academic disinterest into like this woman is so hot, and also these children are foul, and I wish they would stop bothering me i'm working <laughs> yeah. he has like big stepdad energy um in a way that's like i thought you liked them i thought you were curious about them i thought you guys were going to share experiences no you want them to leave you alone but also steal you a circle right, you want them song. to do cool, things cool. for you but not yeah <laughs> be your friends <laughs> it's just a very different feeling like the the whole like overall vibe of this novelization is like so mean in the half that I read. And I wonder yes. if in the back half, the like, yeah. the merging of minds and everything like brings a more like lighthearted, wondrous energy mm. and that E.T.'s presence in their lives makes them all a little happier. Does that happen? Uh, no, the ending <laughs> feels quite rushed, actually. <laughs> oh, it, it's no. super it kind rushed. of, because the whole, yeah, the whole bike chase and, and every, it's kind of condensed into the last 20 pages. <laughs> and obviously it's very cinematic and works fantastically on screen. Uh, but it just felt like he was on a deadline. He was like, oh, shit, I've got to finish this. Let's just hammer it out. And he goes up in a ship, goodbye. So the big emotional farewell uh, just isn't there mm. uh, in the book. It's, it's, it's literally the last page. It's kind of, bye, see you, and here's a, here's a geranium, off you go, bye. Oh, uh, so it's, um, it kind of felt really, really rushed. There, is, there are some nice science fiction touches 
where he's talking about his i mean the weird one of the big differences uh is that everyone gets ill it isn't et doesn't just make yes. elliot ill yes he makes everyone ill uh, and they're all it's like he's almost radioactive and they're all feeling really down around him um so that was that was an interesting change so truly the opposite of what I had hoped for happens, where instead of E.T. making their lives better, yeah. he poisons them and then is like, peace. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. Louise. Cotsy doubles down. Yeah. I remember, Hannah, how in our last episode I had a lot of issue with the fact that he establishes this bond with Elliot and that when he's going to die, Elliot's going to die with him. And I was like, why didn't this fa- affect other people? And also, how did this link happen? Mm-hmm. Like, the, I, I really was being uh, nitpicky about that. I was going, how did they form a link? The thing I like about Kotzwinkel's universe is he goes, this is just like a radioactive telepathic dude. Like, mm. if you're around him enough, you are telepathically linked. And so... Him hanging around this house, he has uh, Elliot linked to him. He has all these plants linked to him. Eventually, he has Lance linked to him. The dog. Is Lance hanging around a lot? The dog's linked to him. Uh, yeah, Lance gets very... Oh, role, in the second half. Yeah, in, go ahead, Mark. Tell, 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 tell Hannah about Lance. <laughs> well, he, he's, uh, he's not... For, for John's benefit, Lance is not, doesn't exist in the film at wow. all. And I downloaded a copy of the screenplay that I found online. There's no mention of him in the screenplay. So I wonder if he's in a much earlier version of the screenplay that maybe... He Cotsman feels like a Spielberg saw. character. Uh, but he essentially threatens... Well, he threatens Elliot with blackmail. He basically follows him around, sees Elliot with E.T., and then says, right, if you don't, if I don't get in on this action, I'm going to tell everyone. And there's a guy going from door to door. Keys goes door to door saying, have you seen an alien in the neighborhood? Yeah. <laughs> uh, goes door <laughs> okay, to door dude. and says, I'm going to tell this guy. Then, then Lance offers to be his manager. He basically says to Elliot, you know, you don't know how to do this. I'm a nerd. Uh, I will take care of all your business affairs. So uh, no doubt Lance is there to also handle all of Elliot's publicity and events after the story. But it's um, he also uh, he's the guy who during the bike chase, he sends a bunch of cops in the wrong direction and then says to Mary, I know where they really are. Thus robbing Mary of any agency in the final right. act of the film. Oh, um, but yeah, so he's just this weird. I can see how in an early draft you might have put a character like that in because Elliot has to express a, a, a lot of the doubts and you know pain that he's feeling. But you know his brother is right there. Michael is right there. Why not use him? So I can see how Lance might have been in an early draft and, and taken out, or it just maybe wasn't on the page in the screenplay so Cotswinkle felt he had to invent him but it's uh, and and also he's the word nerd oh my god when it, when it was really derogatory this was revenge of the nerds period before you know we, we all happily say I'm a geek I'm a nerd these days look at my geeky stuff on my shelves my nerdy <laughs> stuff but I'm then... actually kind of into the Marvel movies that's me <laughs> I exactly. actually I actually think those are good <laughs> so yeah Lance has got a quite a big role but he kind of fades in and out weirdly uh, which makes me think he yeah. might be an invention i don't know but uh, mark you're thought. so right they use nerd so many times and they use it like it's like an epithet <laughs> keep yeah. being like yeah, yeah. Uh, of course he was he was ruining our lives he's such a nerd they use it like it's like yeah. the most derogatory thing you could say um lance yeah just hangs around enough the way he gets on uh, just for the listener the way he gets onto their tail is that he sees E.T. out for Halloween 
And E.T.'s out for Halloween costume lists, which I don't think yes. is in the movie. No, because no, they're just saying, yeah. this is Gertie dressed as an alien, and we just did a really good job. <laughs> and Lance Come on. clocks it and, and goes... That's a real alien. <laughs> yeah. I'm a child. I believe in such things. And um, just as Mark says, keeps following them around. And, and it, it's established at some point that he comes up to Elliot and he goes, come on, let me help you. Like, I'm also linked to E.T. And Elliot's mm. in his head it, it thinks, I could see in his eyes that he was, which bummed me out. <laughs> <laughs> like, Elliot's a twerp and a creepy little kid, but even Lance is too bad for him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, Cotswold goes yeah. a, bit, a bit cute also with uh, E.T. also recognizes Lance as a nerd. He's like, ah, this was known in every planet, a nerd. Like... <laughs> Yeah, kind of a funny um, that and the um, when Elliot fakes having a fever by putting the thermometer near the lamp, uh, ET is like, yes, a mm. trick known round the galaxy. Which I was kind of <laughs> it's like surely that's specific to human biology, right. but whatever. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Mary. There's so mm. much. There's wild about mary <laughs> mary yeah there's something about her et picked that out real quick i could not get over how much she doesn't like her kids and thinks that they are annoying and difficult and not and just like ruining her life like i feel like the sense in the movie is that she's having kind of a hard time on her own but she loves her kids and wants the best for yeah. them and there's so much in this book where she's like, boy, I wish they got eaten by iguanas. Like, God, I wish <laughs> yeah. that they would just leave and never come back. It's, it was really kind of shocking to me how miserable she is. Yeah, this is this is a portrayal of a woman on the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's whereas in, in the in the film, she's dressed in these dungarees. She's very playful. The penis breath line, she laughs at. She does that thing that parents do when your children swear for the first time. It's hysterical. It's the funniest thing ever. And you laugh, and they laugh, and they say it again. And you know, so it, you have this endless cycle. So she's almost one of the older kids. She's like an older sister rather than a mother. That's kind of how she plays it. And it's a brilliant choice because it adds to that kind of childlike thing uh, that's that's going on because Spielberg you know, famously only films it from the kid's point of view the camera's always low oh. the perspective is always low looking up at adults which is why you only ever Keys is called Keys John because you've not seen the mm-hmm. film you only ever see him from like waist height walking through the woods and the keys Got jangling it. you don't see his face till right at the end when he's in this kind of uh, uh, hazard ha- hazmat suit so uh, she makes this great choice to sort of play it childish and like a big sister but even so she's struggling to cope she's clearly you know but she's kind of got it together she's working hard she's you know doing what a lot of single mums have to do which is get through the day with 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 your kids and you know they kind of what i remember is the the banter around the uh the dungeons and dragons uh game it's so well observed it's brilliantly written apparently melissa matheson based it on harrison ford's children the way they would call each other penis breath and stuff while (laughs) playing and eating pizza and stuff like that so it's really really well observed and uh she's she doesn't get in their way you know she's 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 wise enough to sort of step back and and just enjoy it and um but then 
to get into, you know, again, that POV, Cotswinkle, he's made this choice to make, tell it from her. He's got to dig deeper than that. He's got to get inside her head. So he starts thinking, OK, this is a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Why is that? Um, I mean, there's, you know, she th- there's all these weird lines like um, she's talking about if there is because they're saying at first they think E.T. is a pervert in the garden. And she says if it was a sex fiend, she'd go out and like a mother partridge, offer herself as a decoy. <laughs> Uh, and also she's talking she's she's talking about her boss at one point as well oh i have uh, the boss thing is, the boss yeah thing she is... looked she looked at her employer he was a dumbbell a tyrant a sadist and a fool if he was single she'd marry him <laughs> <laughs> well it's if she if if he was single she'd married him so that she would so that he would give her a brick or yeah. s- something yeah. along those lines yeah yeah I did get the the big sister vibes from her in this version, though, because she is like the whole like I do get the sense of like, oh, she's on their level with like the oh, my God, these fucking kids. These are like like the way that like an older sister would be like you annoying little twerps like I can't believe I have to deal with you. Um, And I don't know. I got the sense there was love there, but maybe I was just uh, maybe that was wishful thinking on my part (laughs) because she is pretty negative. I'm with you, John. I, I think that my interpretation of the Mary character is that. Kotzwinkle is playing into a put upon mother sense of humor. If mm. this if that mm. makes mm-hmm. sense where she herself is super loving, but part of that is that she's saying things to herself like kill me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I, yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. it's also this expectation of the reader where it's like you get it. Like a mother can be loving but also constantly feel under the pressure of being a mother, which I, I think what maybe societally we've 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 moved past this style of writing a little bit. It's a little mm. akin to like oh, I'm going home to the old ball and chain, mm. you know that mm-hmm. sort of thing where you're like I'm not actually saying I hate my wife, but isn't it funny to say it? <laughs> and maybe she's and, a nag. Yeah, I mean like that stuff's grounded in something. I don't want to. I won't allow you to pretend that ball and chain language is, like, harmless. I don't approve of it. I think it's, like, shockingly upsetting. But <laughs> um, I, I just mean, like, the, this book seems to be written in the tone of one of those jokes, which is, like, I'm saying something wildly dramatic because I'm trying to convince you I don't feel that way. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, I'm just yeah, not sure it yeah. totally worked for me in the first half of the book. There's just enough points where she's like, all I want to do is lie down, and if one of these kids comes and bothers me, I'm going to kill them. It feels like kind of <laughs> genuine. Like she is, you know, like as Mark was saying, like on the verge of a breakdown, and at any moment in a different direction, she might murder all her children. Like she's really toeing the line and having a hard time and spending a lot of time like, self-caring like putting on creams doing yeah, like yes. under expensive eye masks, creams like, yeah 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 doing things like for <laughs> herself in the bare minimum spare time she has and then she's like i have to go make dinner for these awful kids <laughs> like i i feel for her she's very stressed out but i there is something to it that just felt nasty mm. which goes yeah. which is in line with the general tone of the book it's like a little nasty and a little mean i did find it humanizing but i yeah it's definitely it's balancing on the edge. Uh, I, I think the bits that Cotswinkle does, like the, the jokes that he chooses to do, he just hits so many times, which is fine. They're funny. But like the the that comes up a bunch. And so does Greg just being like sisters ruin people's lives. Well, <laughs> By the end, I was almost wondering, yeah, Greg, Greg, are you like 
coming out right now. He's at the end. He's like, I made a vow then to never have anything to do with anyone's sister. I don't need sisters in my life. And it's like, what, what are you doing? Where are you going here, Greg? <laughs> Which of these boys drools a lot? Is that Greg? Or is that one of the other ones? I think it might also be Greg. Here we go. Well, Elliot screamed Greg, mm. spit flying betwe- behind him. There you go. What? What? But his tongue fumbled in his moist mouthful, and he could only dribble in wonder. <laughs> Drooling. Uh, <laughs> I mean, who describes a child like that? Gross. What the hell? He, He's too old for that. As he pumped for all he was worth. <laughs> Beside him, Steve was hunched over his own handlebars, winged hat on, wings bent by the wind. He, too, glanced at the monster and knew that whatever it was, it was somehow related to letting your kid sister make you bake mud pies. He'd fill in the details later, but a deep vow was born in him at that moment. Never, ever to have anything to do with anybody's sister anymore, including his own. Weird <laughs> things could happen, such as he'd probably learn about such as he'd probably learn about in freshman hygiene class. He bent further over the handlebars, his young mind raging with unanswered <laughs> questions, his feet flying on the pedals. So that's Steve, yeah, that actually, kid's going right? to have a sexual the... crisis later. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Hannah, Hannah asked who writes, who writes children like that, and I think it's in that kind of rolled doll tradition where writing you write about kids being gross because kids know that other kids are gross you, mm-hmm. you sit there in class and you'll see someone picking their nose or picking their ear or picking a scab or whatever you know because there was that kid that always did that or had a slight smell of cabbage or you know it's just so i think that's kind of where he's coming from with that and of course he's you know prolific children's author so um but yeah the kids every child in this i mean gertie maybe comes up but even gertie there's a line uh where she says what you're dressing up as halloween she says bo Derek." yeah you know so it's uh, even even gertie isn't isn't the only one who's kind of fades into the background is is michael the older brother who um is so great in the in the film but he's kind of he's a little bit absent a little bit of vanilla in this there's there's not much not much to him in this sadly i could use more michael i like michael a lot in the movie oh he's great in the movie yeah doesn't his terrorist thing play differently in the book where instead of having the terrorist versus dressing up as something else debate he like does go as a terrorist but they alter his outfit or something well, he has the knife going through his head, doesn't he? Because yeah. ET keeps reaching up to Healy's Healy's head, right? Um, so yeah, I don't. Know. I, I remember the terrorist conversation because yeah. uh, back then terrorism was funny. <laughs> um, but- <laughs> what does that costume look like? Oh, in the movie, we he's never just- see it, oh, okay. right? Because yeah. he ends up going as a hobo. Well, he's um, he's. Is it a hobo or was it a ghoul? Because he has sort of dark around his eyes, doesn't he? Or is that Elliot? I can't remember. I, I, I deliberately didn't watch the film while reading this. So, In the film, he uh, has an argument about, I want to go as a terrorist. But then Mary's like, mm. you can't do that. So he goes as a hobo. Uh-huh. And the hobo costume involves the arrow through right. the head for reasons that are unclear to me personally. I'm just wondering, because like, growing up in like the 90s and 2000s, like <laughs> that would mean a like racist caricature of an Arab person probably. And like, I don't know, maybe in the eighties, was there a different popular image of what that would mean? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, there were more Euro- there was more European terrorism, right. sort of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. at the RAF in Germany and and factions like that, and sort of in the Middle East as well, though. So I don't know, but we never got to see it, sadly. Uh, probably probably just as well. In the uh, Collins version, he says that uh, Michael was in the hobo costume when he had the argument about dressing as a terrorist, which betrayed the fact that he knew he would lose the argument. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sort of an interesting choice. I've got more Mary stuff. So, page 37. She, she doesn't want them to eat the pizza. She says, it has footprints in it, said Mary, desperately wishing to have quiet restored. But of course they ignored her and began eating the stepped-on pizza. She dragged herself back towards the stairs, feeling quite stepped-on herself. She'd lie down, put some herbal pads on her eyes, and count iguanas. She turned at the top of the stairs. When that pizza's done, everyone's out. How nice it must have been when children went to work in coal mines at the age of nine. <laughs> But those days, she felt, were gone forever. She stumbled into her room and collapsed on the bed. Just another typical evening in the life of the gay divorcee. Cold chills, shock, and wandering monsters. She applied her iPads and and stared blindly toward the ceiling. Something seemed to be staring back. But that was just her overwrought imagination. She knew. And if that damn dog doesn't stop barking, I'm going to leave him beside the highway with a note in his mouth. She breathed deeply and began counting her lizards, each of them shuffling toward her in a friendly sort of way. I mean, it's just so dire. Like, it's funny. All of us laughed at all of that, but it's just like, oh, God. But it does make me feel Poor woman. Like, that makes me like Mary, because it is like, oh, my God, you are so out of your depth here. You have no chance. Like, But this this is a period of society where women were expected to have everything. It it was... um, you know, you were you were able to go to work, although very male-dominated work, even more so than today, male-dominated workplaces. You know, you were expected. Jane Fonda's out there doing uh, aerobics, and everyone had to be slim. They had to look perfect. You, you know, you had to bring up a family and smile while you were doing it. So there is this thing of she, you know, this eighties expectation of you're going to be the perfect woman. You're going to do everything. Uh, all with a smile on your face. And she's clearly, you know, cracking under the pressure, which is, you know, I love those touches. She's got those expensive creams to make her look young. She's got putting things on her eyes uh, and fantasies of, you know, these kind of low rent fantasies. There's one, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, I've got different page numbers to you guys, but it's on page 77. Of Sounds my like one, someone's reading says, a Simon Spotlight. <laughs> Uh, she says, uh, despite he, she's she's uh, watching someone on on TV. Despite his low IQ, she had a crush on him and fantasized jumping hand in hand with him into the televised swimming pool while the Swedish woman rotated her big toe with two fingers. Mm. You know, she's having these really <laughs> weird. Um, she's watching a workout. You know, these these weird kind of low rent sexual fantasies. So it's an interesting portrayal of a of a woman at that time who's expected to have everything and is kind of crumbling under the under the pressure. Mark, you alluded to being a father, is that correct? I have two children, yes. yes. So, as a person with who is unwed and has no children, <laughs> sometimes my days get so busy that I feel like my life is spiraling out of control. How is it possible to have a child, and uh, is it real, or is everyone faking it? Are there no children? <laughs> no, there are, there are children. Mine are grown up now. They're, they're 20 and 22, but... Um, 
And weirdly, the dark days of when they were both toddlers uh, are, are erased from your mind. It's interesting. <laughs> kind of blank it out. People show you photos and you look at your house at that time with food on the walls and the sofas in pieces. And, you know, and you think, how did we how do we get through? I my two great nephews over at the weekend and they're two and three. And it was like the Tasmanian devil had been through this <laughs> trail of destruction everywhere. And it's like, and they were here for about four hours, like, bye. And we all had to have naps afterwards. So, um, bless them, I love them to bits, but I'm glad to give them back. So, uh, you know, that, that thing of um, uh, kids in the house, particularly boys as well, boys are so well masculine you know they're so they're mm-hmm. full of testosterone they're playing games like dungeons and dragons and they're, they're, they're you know they're full on they're full of energy they've always got something to prove um it's uh, it can be completely exhausting completely exhausting so i i really you know we i i i really empathize with mary in this book you know mm. um i'm lucky you know my wife and i have been married 27 years now um never a crossword kind of thing we always stuck together uh but yeah it's um doing that on our own must be nuts i i had a, a friend of mine uh i i remember he you know he and he and his brother and his sister quite a similar setup to et and his mother looked after them so whenever i went around to his house it had an et vibe because his <laughs> mum was bringing these kids up on her own and she so yeah. had that really wry sense of humor yeah, so I'll go and play with the traffic, you know, that kind of thing. Because, I, I, and I think it's, a, I think it's a survival instinct. You know, you become one of the kids. You have to, otherwise mm-hmm. they'll consume you. Mm. You know, they'll drive you nuts. You touch on an interesting thing there: the the absence of the father figure, which I, I think mm. the subtext, right, of of E.T. the film, and I would say both of these novelizations we've read is that whatever's gone on with the father is pretty fresh. Like, his absence is mm. felt, his absence is not the norm yet, or doesn't feel no. like the norm. Um, mm. Which I think contextualizes things with Mary a little bit more. Because she might be in a spiral right now that she will pull out of. I mean, th- there might be active mm-hmm. trauma basically happening. I mean, this book yeah. says that he, her ex-husband ran off with one of her friends. Yes. Which is devastating. Like, that makes it even harder. Like, not only did your husband leave you, but he took with him part of your support structure and someone you thought you could trust. Like, that's hard. Yeah, you're making a great case, Hannah, that Kotzwinkle is just making the darkest possible choice (laughs) at basically every juncture. Yeah, that's how it felt to me. But don't don't forget, this is all coming from Spielberg because uh, his parents divorced when he was quite mm. young. He grew up in a very with a very similar family dynamic to this, where his mother brought brought up the kids. You know, his father was an. It's something you see recurring in his films again and again: the mm-hmm. absent father figure. And of course, he's doing his um, sort of more autobiographical film shooting this year, uh, oh. which will directly tackle that. So, I is think that's his all dad going to be David Lynch? <laughs> because david lynch has been oh, cast gosh, in that film yeah. so yeah maybe could be yeah i mean there's that pretty famous interview where it's not charlie rose but it's that kind of guy says to him like oh well close encounters of the third time is obviously about your parents divorce <laughs> and steven spielberg goes like oh yeah i guess it is <laughs> like clearly this is so much in all parts of his mind that even subconsciously he's making movies about when your family falls apart yeah. 
I mean, the, the thing about Close Encounters, and I think Spielberg has said that he regrets this, that, that is a film made about a family by someone who isn't a father. Because I don't mm. think any father would get on a spaceship and leave behind his kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm. never to see them again. Mm. And yet that must be how he felt about his own father, leaving leaving them to fend for themselves. It's just such a weird ending. It's some, um, you know, uh, little Barry is reunited with his mother. They get to stay together. But he doesn't even look back at his his kids. You know, he yeah. just, yeah, I'm going to a spaceship. Yeah, never coming back. Whoosh. Yeah, I mean, and then by E.T., when E.T. says to Elliot, like, are you coming? And Elliot's like, no, I'm staying with no, my family. Stay, like, that's yeah, huge growth yeah, in, like, yeah, yeah. under yeah. 10 years. Um, I had another, like, 80s parenting culture question. Well, I was just wondering, is is it in the the film as well, the, this sort of, like, pervasive theme of, like, part of Mary feeling so overwhelmed is, like oh my god, like, culture of young people today is out of control. I I know they're doing drugs. I know they're out there getting drunk. They're gonna, like, fall into these terrible things. Like, drugs are everywhere. I can't do anything to control it. This is, like, oh, uh, the world... Almost a feeling of, like, the world is falling apart. What can I even hope to do? Um, is that... Which I feel like is a very, like, 80s youth culture fears thing. Is that is that in the film at all? Or is that a Kotswinkel thing? Not not really not mm. really i mean it you're right in that historically this is the age of the satanic right, panic right. and uh parents worrying about not, not understanding drugs and and worrying uh, you know uh, that everyone's going to be every child's going to be kidnapped by satanic mm-hmm. cults and what have you i remember when i was at school um because i never got into dungeons and dragons because dungeons and dragons was banned by the young christian society at my school right. it was thought to be uh, satanic so, right? you know it was all the kids who would have been doing dungeons and dragons after school yeah instead they didn't play dungeons and dragons they went and hung out at the pub and did drugs that's the irony <laughs> by stopping them playing dungeons and dragons these kids turned out you know to to do the the bad things and also i will also add one of the kids in that society went to jail for child molestation oh in the christian God. society so i'm just saying i i would i can't believe that that would exist within the christian faith i reject it <laughs> i know Who'd have, who'd, have, who'd have thunk it? But uh, yeah, so it was. It was, but it's not something that's touched on in the film, really. There's there's chaos. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons, but it's all kind of lighthearted. Yeah. And then even when Elliot gets suspended from school for being drunk or bad behavior, mm-hmm. Mary's response to that in the movie is much more like, "That doesn't sound like my kid. I don't know about that. Mm. Like clearly something's going on with him, but I don't think it's that he's drinking at school." Yeah. Um, I don't know how that plays out in the book. I didn't get there. There is, well, interestingly, there is a scene that is deleted from the movie that's in the book where Harrison Ford plays the principal. Whoa. And you never see his face, but you see... I love yeah, the principal so he's, in the book. And there's a, there's a whole section where he says... Yeah, well, and, and he has a speech about, oh, qualudes uh-huh. and drugs and heroin and all this kind of thing. And while he's pontificating, he sort of opens the blinds and looks out the window. And behind him, Elliot elevates because of the psychic connection with E.T. He rises into the air and then panics and then goes back down again. And then the principal turns around and keeps talking about drugs. So actually, John, there was a scene in the film about that. But it was cut, Ugh. and Harrison Ford could have been an ET. But that's too bad because I really like that. So yeah, I I wrote a quote from that. It's uh, the principal, the sort of haughty principal smoking his pipe, 
talking to, to Elliotism. He flogged the boy with cliches, strings of platitudes taken from television, newspapers, boring professional journals, and the sparkling shallows of his own mind. Uh, I love that description of someone who thinks very highly of themselves, but uh, their mind is, in fact, a bit shallow. Um, and then he does see, if I'm not remembering this wrong, he does witness Elliot levitate and is so... Uh, yes. put off and unhinged by it that he digs into his confiscated drugs drawer and pops some quaaludes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Quaaludes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't happen in the film. It happens behind his back uh, and he doesn't actually see it. The, the, scene, the scene was cut. So it, it must be from the Matheson script because it pops up in both novelizations we've read. Mm, that the principal yeah. sees it and yeah, in, the, yeah. in the Collins yeah. he's like... Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, this has been a long day. I think we should all go home. <laughs> As if to suggest that they're all just having some shared madness. <laughs> the the principal does think in this book. We get a little principal context. He's thinking his predecessor in the office had been a sexual offender, retired early after several private oh, incidents God, yes. in the supply co- closet became public. <laughs> He'd rocked the... No, he'd rock the boat. The office of principal now, however, was stable. A predictable atmosphere prevailed. The pillars of education were unshakable. The earth had been tamed. The system would prevail. This book is obsessed with perverts. It, like, can't get over the idea that there's perverts around every corner. He's like, oh, he was a a sex predator. And the reason that was bad was because it rocked the boat too much. Like, that's your take on (laughs) it. This was a thing from the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. You were constantly warned, don't talk to strangers, mm-hmm. don't go up to someone's car. There were there were public information films on TV. Basically, every man was a pervert waiting to drag, drag you, offering you sweeties or candy <laughs> and dragging you into their car, uh, a way to do terrible things to you. So it's very much of its time, mm-hmm. this thing. Whereas now, perverts do it online. They find you online. But back then, they really had to make an effort, get a car, you know, and or, or a, a van, you know, and take you out into the middle of nowhere. But now they get their kicks online. So that's yeah. some progress, and I suppose. Dark as it is, I, I do get the sense this is actually like a little bit more of a realistic portrayal of where that kind of crime actually happened. Like it would be more likely to be like an authority figure at your school and, and not a cris- scary stranger in a van. Yeah, yeah. It just feels um, like for a movie that is for younger audiences i think mm-hmm. like i think there's no arguing that et is like a g-rated movie like it's nice right to have this book be engaging so thoroughly with these fears and suburban terrors just feels unnecessary to me like yeah. it's realistic it's true like i also grew up in a time i mean i think i thought i was going to be murdered not molested the concept of being molested did not occur to me as a child um but like it's just so wild to me that, like, these are children characters and so much of their time is spent being like, well, it's probably a pervert in the backyard. Let's go find him. Mm-hmm. It yeah, just and feels it turns like out it really... Is. Um, <laughs> exactly, and it is. But this is why Generation X is the best generation that survived <laughs> all this. I just, just want to say that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of of its time and you were, we used to be very flippant about that kind of thing. I mean, what's interesting... Hannah, you said it's a G-rated movie. In the UK, we have slightly different ratings. So uh, when it was originally released, it was a U, which means universal. It's the equivalent to G. Um, but since then, because the BBFC in the UK, the British Board of Film Classification, that every now and then, whenever something is re-released, they watch it again 
because of the mm-hmm. changing context. And it's now a PG. It does come with a warning saying hmm. there's penis breath in this. You know, there are there are <laughs> these weird kind of and things. There's very that, scary imagery. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I do. I would want to ask, like the part where the government bust into their house, which is a pretty mm. scary moment in the movie and then it gets scarier from there as they tent their entire living room and create this medical facility in their house like how does that play out in this book because it feels like there is not a room for it uh, based on I mean finding the principal passage in here I was like there's not there's no time (laughs) Mm. you get uh, quite an expositional scene with keys where it kind mm-hmm. of ruins the surprise. You, he's he's in a room saying, okay, we need to get all these scientists together and he's having trouble convincing them that this is a real thing. He's got a map. He says, well, what we're going to do, we're going to put this big plastic sheet over the house. We're going to contain this. We're going to do this, that and that. So you know it's coming. Mm-hmm. It, you don't have that element of surprise. And then she, there's a line where Mary opens the door. Oh, and there's an astronaut on my doorstep. End scene. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of cut. So it it's, again, it's that final act feels quite rushed in the book. Uh, and it's not it doesn't quite have the impact that it does in in the film the film is you know, fantastic when it does that i think the end of the book really has great character insights but the actual plot beats as you say just suddenly it's like the government's there and then we're on the run and then literally on like the third to last page they're like suddenly the ship was overhead et was being taken up then it was sad for a moment uh, imagine things that would make you feel sad and then he's gone <laughs> yeah. um oh my god yeah it wraps yeah, up very quickly yeah <laughs> one thing i really like about the end of the book that mark you just touched on was i actually like the the backstory they give to keys are you saying that you feel like it takes some punch away um, I like the. Ba- I mean, this is the thing you have to do as a novelist. You have to look for opportunities for page count and word count. You know, you've got to right. okay. Where can I dig deeper? Keys is an obvious character in that you think okay, here's someone whose life's ambition is to track down you know aliens. So let's let's dig into that a little bit more. But yeah, you so you have that expositional scene where he's planning what what they're going to do, and it's very clear that they're on to Elliot from very early on. Whereas in the film, mm-hmm. because of the, it's all from Elliot's perspective, you get vans going past and mysterious stuff, but you, you never know how much they actually know. So it's, there's a clarity there. It's just different, but it, you know, it doesn't have the impact. That, that thing where there is an astronaut on the doorstep doesn't quite have the impact yes. in the book that it does in the movie. They literally, like, you know, yeah, you're, as you say, they, they literally have people sneaking into the house and checking to make sure, yeah, we do think this is where E.T.'s staying and, mm. and all of that stuff. I, I think then we're talking about separate passages because what what I'm referencing is on 198, Kotzwinkel just goes full in on like who is Keys and yeah, what is the, his what deal. What sort of fellow was which, Keys? I like that passage too. Yeah, as a viewer of the film E.T. the Extraterrestrial, I was like, who is Keys and what is his deal? Because he just <laughs> says some confusing lines like, oh yeah, E.T. came to me too. And then that's not expanded on. And I was like, as a child, what are you talking about? So, uh, On 198, it says, uh, What sort of fellow was Keyes? This quiet man at the center of a cyclone that was gradually picking up speed. He'd had this odd dream as a child, that a spacecraft would come to Earth and select him as the recipient of of its advanced knowledge. He would then turn this knowledge over to humanity. The dreams of childhood seldom come true. Keyes' dream kept moving him into ever more recondite areas of surveillance, until finally he was one of those who looked... For that which was most obscure of all, a flashing light in the sky, 
a trail of vapor on the horizon, a troubling shape on a radar screen. Keyes became a man familiar with uh, deserts and mountaintops, had spent months on them, with the full map of stars overhead, through which the mystery sailed, maddeningly distant. But like every hunter who is diligent, Keyes gradually saw a pattern in the movement of his prey. He was outclassed in every way. He rode in a jeep while his quarry commanded a comet of power. He had to be satisfied with Earth technology when the craft above him moved with inhuman grace. But habit seems universal, and Keyes discovered that even the celestial captain had one, which had to do with the cycle of Earth's vegetation. Gradually, he came to realize this peculiar, or he came to this peculiar realization. The great ship arrived when things blossomed. It, it goes on for a while. This is like a three-page thing. But this is maybe my favorite section of the book, where they just go, they, Cotswinkle says, this is an opportunity to flesh out a character who really gets barely any scream time, but is very compelling in the film. Does he seem yeah. nice in this book? Is he a nice guy? Well, he hates Elliot. Uh, towards the end, he calls him a little bastard and a no-good son of a bitch. Oh, jeez, <laughs> oh, Louise. Yeah. Yeah, but Cotswinkle. kind of nice. I forgot that part, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, I like me, that he wasn't. He doesn't come off as evil. I mean, in our previous book that we read, in watching the movie, I got to the end and I was like, "Boy, I hope Mary dates Mister Keys. Ah, he yes. seems really nice. Yeah. They seem like they would get on, and yeah, yeah, he would yeah. be a healthy guy to date." Um, so bummer to hear that he hates her kid. Well, the the, the context is that. Essentially, Elliot lies to his face. So um, the little bastard, Agent Keys, was mumbling to himself, the no-good little son of a bitch. Elliot's <laughs> sweet, lying face was with him. The kid will go far in life with a face like that. Screw you all <laughs> up just at the last moment when you have the trophy in your hand. I mean, that's five pages from the end. I think <laughs> oh, he's wow. just pissed that <laughs> Elliot stopped him from catching E.T. I don't think it's... Not like that, yeah, yeah. Like that one doctor, his hatred for E.T., where it's like... This is uh, like hatred came bubbling up from within his heart for this yeah, awful yeah. monster. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find that. That that part is one of my favorite things. In the, here we go. 2:43. He stared. This is the doctor looking at ET. He stared back down at the monstrous face. If ever there was an unfeeling, unrelated, cold, and loveless creature in the universe, <laughs> it was this goddamn thing before him. <laughs> Somehow, it had evolved intelligence, for there had been a spaceship, but the creatures who ran it were parasites, predators, <laughs> incapable of sympathy, kindness, all the fine human things. He knew it as surely as he was standing here, and he wanted with all his heart to strangle the freak. <laughs> it was dangerous. It's, he, he, was not, he could not say why, but his whole body knew it was dangerous to all of them. He just, he hates I mean, the, the worst version of humanity to look at anything different yeah. and be like, this has no soul. Just, just horrendous. Yeah. And that's that's racist. Yeah. 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 And like, I hope that's the point being made. <laughs> I get that he's an ugly little freak and I also want to squish him, but that's too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's too far. <laughs> My gosh. Hannah, you think the other ETs are beautiful. You just no, think they're that all E.T. Icky. is gross. Oh, <laughs> Every okay. E.T. is icky. They're little pear-shaped bodies. I, I mean, I've said this previously, but when his neck is long, I cannot look at him. <laughs> when his neck is short and he's just like a little rectangle guy, much more palatable to me. 
Circling back to Mr. Keyes for a second, mm-hmm. um, in the movie, it felt very much to me that once E.T. escapes, Keyes is like, okay, he's going home. We got to get this little guy home. Is the vibe in this book that he's still cry- trying to catch him? It oh, sounds yeah. like it kind of yeah, is. Ah, yeah, yeah. oh, man. Yeah. 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 Just like the nastiest choice at every turn. Mm. <laughs> it, well, the ending is, is so kind of rushed that it all becomes a bit of a blur. You know, but uh, mm. yeah, essentially there's an ending and they're all heading towards it like wacky races at the end. <laughs> it's um, so, yeah, it's uh, it is, is kind of rushed. Do people actually call wow. him Keys in the movie? Because in the book it says no. everyone just called him Keys. <laughs> and it's like, really? Just because he carries keys? That's, uh, he's got doors to open. That's not that weird. <laughs> I, I really thought that it was his name. Um in the like, because they say in Agent the first Keys. Book, I thought it was end. just his name, but like no. his yeah. name is Christopher Keys. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Huh. Old Old Katsi makes it clear that it's a nickname. Yeah. I, I think again, I think this is another clue that he's looking at the screenplay because when you're writing uh, a screenplay and you've got a character who's never actually named uh, or is a supporting character, sometimes you might just refer to them by some physical trait or something they wear mm-hmm. you know eye patch or something like that so uh you know i i just wrote a thing where i've got uh, two kind of ray harryhausen type skeletons fighting someone one oh. has an eye patch one has no jaw so i refer to them in script rather than skeleton number one skeleton which is tedious you call them eye patch or no jaw and then you can you mm. kind of visualize them a lot better so this is kind of screenwriter shorthand where some where matheson has gone okay we'll call him we'll just call him keys because we always see his keys mm-hmm. and it becomes a shorthand way you're making the movie as well and he's never referred to by name um, so yeah, I think I think that's where that comes from. That kind that of screenwriter sense. rhetoric. It is fun to pivot that into your book and say, no, that's true within the yeah, world yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. Like everyone calls him Keys. His name is Keys. That's a fun choice to make, and it makes as you refer to him as Keys a little more natural. Page fifty, <clears throat> or starting on forty nine. It's the penis breath line, which we were already talking about, and it says uh, Elliot threw down his fork. It was nothing like that penis breath. Penis breath. Mary sat back, eyes wide. How had that expression come into her little family circle? All the elements of the expression came to her slowly then, and she had to admit it was an organic possibility, one that could even produce a certain wistfulness in a lonely divorcee's mind. But... Pretty pretty brutal on Kotzwinkle's part to be like, she hears penis breath, she's a good mother, she says don't say that, but it also makes her think of penis breath fondly. <laughs> I didn't know where to fit that in, so I just had to throw it in there. Yes, we're getting, we're getting to the miscellaneous part of the show of all our leftover notes. <laughs> yeah. Because there's so much. There is so much. There is so much. Uh, one thing I, I, I did want to bring up is Kotzwinkel's idea of, or his execution of, like, on-page humor. So... One of the things he does in the principal scene is there's that whole thing that I already read about the principal's predecessor, and um, I will actually have law, and I will actually have order, and things will be calm. And the next line is, but unfortunately, the boy was levitating. Yes. And it's like, he's he's making an attempt, and I think succeeding at doing actual setup punchline in a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's one very early on. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, so, yeah, you ha- uh, it's on page 18 in my one, uh, but the, the page numbers are different in the hardcover, where 
Mary is saying, where's the exciting male in her life? Next paragraph, you cut to E.T. saying he's walking, you know, through the garden. So he, is, he, does, he does a lot of these pay up, set up, set up, uh, pay off kind of things. Um, so, yeah, it, they are. It, it did make me laugh quite a few times in a kind of, oh, my God, kind of yeah. way. Um, it's a funny book. It's good sense of humor. If did this one make you laugh where Keys is talking about capturing E.T. and he said and somebody says, your man, if he's anywhere is up in these hills, eking out a marginal existence. That's right. Certainly not sitting in somebody's kitchen having a milkshake. Yeah. Paragraph break. Cut to E.T. E.T. sat in the kitchen, <laughs> sipping his milkshake. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. I mean, the mirror, the ability to make a visual gag work in your book is, is skill. That yeah. takes some effort That's and some talent. Good. And he's got it. I mean, this book is well written. I'm not here to say it's not. I think it has a mean heart. <laughs> but it is certainly very well written and interesting to read. And a really interesting example of what a novelization can be, I think. This is kind of mm-hmm. unusual to have like a totally reimagined yeah. um, perspective on your entire film. That's what I love about this book. It's not just someone padding it out or filling in the gaps. Mm-hmm. He's taken he's taken some real liberties with it. And it does make you wonder who signed off on this who you know did steve you know sit down and go yeah i'm fine with this or did someone just kind of you know did he deliver it so late they're like okay just just go to print yeah we trust you you know so it's um i mean i can't imagine steven spielberg was like yep that's my movie great mm -hmm. job yeah (laughs) Yeah. i would be shocked yeah and this sold millions of copies Uh, this sold this is the sixth imprint that i've got a six wow Hard hardcover imprints that never happens these days unless you're, you know, uh, you know, Michael Conley or someone like that. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. This sold a lot of copies despite being warped and weird and children. <laughs> I mean, what a talking point. You go to school the next day and you're like, are you reading ET? We saw ET, but like, are you reading this shit? Yeah. Can you believe it? <laughs> you bring up an interesting point, Mark, which is a lot of times I write off these weird novelizations as like, the novelization sub-industry seems to have a certain lack of oversight, especially Mm. when the novelization is of a movie that isn't E.T. That's like, you know, kind of like lesser known or lesser paid attention to. We have an episode coming up where someone just wrote the most Baroque, beautiful novelization of Cowboys and Aliens you could imagine. Oh, great. Like, would you really want to publish a book that puts your movie to shame? And they did. They just did that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's you. You you then watch Cowboys and Aliens, and you're like, "This is dirt." Yeah, this is this is <laughs> derivative. A disappointing movie. <laughs> but I think that this is an interesting case where maybe that's not true because we have evidence that Kotzwinkle gets a second round. He with input from Spielberg, maybe Matheson. I mean, I'll do the research for that when we talk about it. There, you know, he comes back and does the book of the Green Planet, which is not just mm. him shooting from the hip. It's not him being like, "I wrote another ET story. I hope no one gets mad." Yeah. It's like a, you know, it has this the stamp of approval. So obviously, Spielberg either approved of what was in this book or saw it after the fact and was like, "That's that's for me." The other thing to remember is to put this film in context. This was Spielberg's little film. Mm-hmm. He'd, you know, he'd he'd. Close Encounters went way over budget, way over schedule. Uh, 1941 was a disaster. It was the it was an unfunny comedy, a too long again box office 
poison. He did Raiders as a favour for Lucas and to prove that he could bring in a film under budget and under schedule, which he did. But he still had a lot to prove. So he had a hit and he had wanted to make this little film about a boy and his alien and this whole father thing that he's got going on. So this was going to be the small film that he could make before he went on to make another blockbuster. So mm-hmm. the... I think the initial expectations for this film were quite low. And I wonder, because of that, a lot of the merchandise, there weren't many E.T. toys initially. There Mm. were these weird plushies that looked nothing like E.T., that looked like they'd been rushed. Uh, There were, you know, all the, everything, I mean, in the UK, I think we got it months after you did in the States. So, you know, but if you go back and look at the initial release of this, it was quite low key. But the reviews and people just kept going back for more. And, of course, you've got Carlo Rambaldi's design and the, the creature looks incredible. And the kids give these off-the-chart performances, which no one had any right to expect were going to be as good as they were. No one expected Henry Thomas to deliver that kind of performance. So I wonder if, likewise, the, the, the tie-in novelization was kind of almost like an afterthought or kind of, oh, yeah, I guess we need one, and knock one off. I'm, I'm not even going to read the thing. Just get it out there. Yeah, I mean, makes sense. Strong case. <laughs> yeah. There's the infamous uh, video game, right? It's supposed to have been yes. like, <laughs> one of the worst video games ever made. I have more I want to say about ET. I'm not trying to put the kaput on ET, but Mark, you wrote a movie that's theatrical run, and now I will watch this movie by the time of the Book of the Green Planet because I have questions about your your process of novelizing. It's its theatrical release was it was a 90 minute cut and your mm. novelization is like 385 pages is it yeah. sim- similar to the Kotzwinkle, like your novelizing style where did you expound or were you were you putting in deleted scenes like how did you go about that uh i well first of all i had 8 months to write it which is a lot mm-hmm. longer than any novelization author gets and also I co-wrote the movie. So the 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 way Robot Overlords came about is the director, John Wright, came to me and he said, I had a dream where I was out in the street with a boy and he didn't have a child at the time. He, he's got a son now. but And he said, we were out in the street and we were told by a robot to go indoors or we'd be vaporized. And, and it really freaked him out. And he said, there's something about being stuck in... We wrote a lockdown movie before lockdown was a thing you know so this so yeah. we came up with it we, we came up with this idea of, of a world where robots have invaded and everyone's been kept in their homes and there's some sinister secret purpose purpose going on et was a reference point constantly because it's a film we both love and we've got a cast of children being abusive to each other you know the penis breath line was was key we wanted kids you know being snarky to one another uh mm. and um had a lot of fun with that uh so we did tons of world building that never really makes it into the film. We did, we had tons of backstory for what happened to the family during the invasion, how they all ended up living in the same house. Uh, and then for me, it, it was... Um, so I'm in the film very, very briefly. There's a, there's a scene where the kids stumble on a, across a building where all the kind of town's... Ne'er do wells, the criminals, the the crooks—they're all put in this one place, and so they sneak. It's an old hotel, and they sneak in there, and they find these people having a bare knuckle boxing fight, and these kids sneak in. And I'm one of the people cheering them on, 
and I spent <laughs> I spent a day I spent a day on set, and I'm talking to all these uh, extras, and they're all bring they're all creating backstories for their characters, uh, w- without any context to the rest of the film. They kind of know the the premise of the film. So I for the second half of the novel, I took that, and I I had a, I have a whole resistance movement. These people who rise up against the robots. Wow. Separate to the main story. Because I grew up watching V as well. V was a kind of influence on that too. So I I have the unique advantage in that I'm co-creator of, of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I I feel licensed to take liberties. And I'll discuss it with John, the uh, director. And I also had access to the visual effects people. So the film, uh, I started writing immediately because the producers got very excited when the film was in... Uh, first edit came in and they were they were saying you know there could be a game there could be this there could be a book and i immediately put my hand up said i'll write the book because i you know (laughs) i figured you know there's never going to be another opportunity like this and having grown up on novelizations i thought this is this is it this is my chance to do something to take Mm -hmm. it beyond and i always loved those books that went beyond the movie the star trek ones were always good at that because they there was a kind of a brain trust at star trek where they would talk about the the law the the canon that kind of thing and and the Cotswinkle, the et you know they he took great liberties with that which i always admire so i thought actually i'm gonna have some fun with this i'm because when you make i love making films because they're a big collaborative experience but you're essentially handing a story over to other people and the actors you have fun with it you improvise some lines set design you have fun with it and you let them get on with it and then when it the film was done because I went on set a few times and you'd see little details on set where the production designer had thought about what would it be like to live inside for all this time. Okay, they'd have plants in old baked bean tins, tin cans. Great touch. I would never have thought of that. So I was going around making notes, liberally stealing from production design and costume mm-hmm. design. and you know. So I, I had all that access that a lot of those authors don't get. And I had the time to to write the same kind of time I would I would have to write a, a regular novel so it was it was such a great opportunity so it's um I think it stands alone as a as a book the the film I'm very very proud of the film but you say it was released theatrically it really wasn't it, it kind mm. of um we fell at the final hurdle with distribution sadly because we'd written a movie for 11 year old boys which is basically the most difficult market to reach unless you spend millions of pounds, certainly back then, 2015, on TV advertising and mm-hmm. advertising on billboards and buses. And we were in a situation where we'd essentially made our money back with international sales. The film was in profit. So to risk another £2 million on a big advertising campaign, they just went, we don't need to. So it because it was a BFI movie, British Film Institute movie, they backed it. Uh, it had to have a technically a theatrical release, but what happened is they gave it to one chain of cinemas who kind of showed it in between, you know, when nothing else was on. So it was either shown at nine in the morning or 11 at night, which for a kid's movie, mm-hmm. you know, forget about it. So it didn't, no one actually really got to see it. So it's, um, weirdly, it's got a second life now because one lockdown, everyone's, mm-hmm. everyone who stumbles across it goes, whoa. You know, this is all about lockdown. This is so weird. Um, and two, it's on Netflix over here. I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix in the States as well. So oh, great. in terms of being able to see it, it's 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 fairly accessible. So it's weird. It's getting a strange second life now. Um, but the the book, I'm really, really proud of the book. It's my first novel. 
had a great time. It was published by Golantz, who, frankly, the finest science fiction publisher in the UK. Mm-hmm. Fantastic editor. We didn't think of it as a rushed tie-in novel. We, you know, we we took the time to to work on it. And there's tons of extra stuff. I also wrote a short story in the back that expanded the universe a bit. Saw saw the um the invasion from a, a different perspective from from a really obnoxious kid actually. <laughs> um, so. Uh, yeah. Were you um, provided with a constraint? Like, did you need to reach a certain page count? I th- I haven't read it, so I'm not saying, boy, that thing was padded. <laughs> no, no. I I mean, we wanted it to be novel length, so it's about eighty thousand words. Um, yeah. But what I I the the opportunity was to dig deeper into the characters. But unlike mm-hmm. Cotswinkle, I'd seen the performances. I'd met the actors. I mean, we had Ben Kingsley playing the villain. Oh wow, uh, Sir Ben. Uh, we've got Gillian Anderson playing the mother and I was able to have little conversations with them and, and find out where they were coming from and talk to the kids and what they felt about um, you know what they felt about the characters so I had the opportunity to really dig down deep with those characters mm-hmm. and get inside their heads and there's tons of for want of a better word, backstory in the novel that you, you just don't see in the film it's, it's hinted at, you hear lines here and there but um, if you read the best novelizations if you watch the film then read the novelization the two of them kind of mesh together and create mm-hmm. a whole and that's what i was aiming for with that so there's um and also there was a crazy period where we were talking about sequels or a tv show or whatever and it never happened sadly but uh there were kind of i was kind of i had one foot in the future thinking yeah i need to build this universe up i need to figure out where these robots have come from and what their right. story is and what their intention is and again it's only vaguely hinted at in the film but it's it's all in the book I find that for the novelizations that I really enjoy, I, months after we record the episode on them, will legitimately forget what was in the book and what was in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, oh yeah, that scene, did that happen in my head or were actors made to do that? Um, (laughs) One one thing that you touched on there, saying that like, you know, all these actors had their their backstories worked out and you, you, you expanded on that. Something about the E.T. book that I find interesting is that Cotswinkle keeps, I would even say, putting things in whole cloth sort of in that sense. Now, to you, it mm. might not be whole cloth because it's like based in the experience of being on set, right? But to the reader, yeah. for, you know, whatever you're adding for those characters is new. It's like I wouldn't have necessarily gleaned this from from watching the film. I felt that way about Cotswinkle's choice many of his choices but the one that i'm i'm thinking of is the choice to say that like people who come into contact with et get these glimpses of the span of eternity mm-hmm. which is sort of interesting and like it 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 happens differently for everyone so let me find where this occurred um oh i just have this as a note i really like that the book just clarifies that et has a standby telepathy setting <laughs> and that when when Elliot is is like acting crazy in class, it's E.T.'s like, oh, I accidentally left my standby telepathy on. <laughs> There's a level of mechanism about him where like his eyes can he can like flip through different lenses kind of, mm-hmm. uh, which was bizarre to me for a little plant fella. I was like, and now you can do this. Just like another whole cloth sort of invention that makes sense is like, you know, sure, that's a thing. Um, but, I mean, turning those pages, I was like, oh, that's a fun, that's interesting. 
And even these like dreams that Gertie has where she's like, are we going to go to that rainbow waterfall? And E.T.'s like, I've been there. <laughs> cool it. <laughs> it's fascinating. <clears throat> the um, scene I'm thinking of is when they're trying to phone home and they're just kind of like rolling around in the grass. And it says, Elliot stared at the night sky and seemed to go out of himself into the starshine of old, so sweetly alluring, yet whose secrets are hidden from men, and wisely so. He rolled on the grass, body buzzing with cool starfire. The message shot through his whole being. A message meant to be carried by a creature much more evolved than himself. A creature whose inner nature was such that it could love a star and be loved in return by the overwhelming solar force. The music of the spheres devoured him, taking his meager little earth soul and overwhelming it with the ecstasy of the cosmos, against with which earthlings by birth are shielded. <clears throat> he choked back a sob, climbing to his feet, staggering over to his bike. He couldn't take it. Must it be ecstasy? I love that. You know, like must it? <laughs> I think that's so cool. <laughs> you think it's a little too what? Uh, Sexed up? I guess a little bit. A little like it like, feels like the yeah. experience he's having is sort of like sexy, I guess. Um, Orgasmic. I love the idea. I, I like it. I like that he's like experiencing the universe and being like, oh my God, this is too much for me. It's too beautiful. Mm. It's too powerful. It's too expansive for my poor little human boy brain. Like, I like all that. The language, yeah. <laughs> which just makes it like, just puts it over that, like, into that, like, um, oh, we're being perverted, huh? And part of <laughs> just right over the line for me. Part of E.T. being a little bit of a creep in the book throughout for me was his telepathic connection with Elliot feels like a little bit of like a violation. Like it feels like something you should ask someone for permission before doing. Um, like the way that it becomes, he's sort of using it to like control Elliot almost and like get him to do what he wants. It's like, that was, I like that moment you just read over me, but I do, yeah, I did throughout kind of feel like that was part of what was contributing to my like, oh, this guy's, this guy's kind of an unsavory dude, this E.T. I mean, in the movie, it feels sort of accidental. Like, yeah. they just sort of find each other and they have a connection and their mental bond forms out of that. Mm. And the book feels very purposeful that E.T.'s like, I'm getting in this kid's brain and I'm going to make him help me. And that's, yeah, I agree. Invasive, kind of creepy. And that E.T. is such an adult. Um, it turns mm. me off, man. Mm. I hate to say it. I disagree on this point. I think that the the movie feels that way. Like, he has this one intense connection with this one child and then as I was saying earlier, the book really makes E.T. seem like this flamboyantly radioactive creature. And like anyone spending enough time around him kind of becomes connected and infected. Like it, 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 his influence over plants and other people in the book and the dog and everything feels so scattershot. That it, I mean, it I kind of like removes. The plants refer to him as an ancient master. <laughs> That's not yeah. cool either. Um, yeah, Kotzwinkle describes it at one point as a, a like um, a, a wave of uh, higher communication rainbowing around his head, uh, which I found to be a very vivid mm. description. It might, reminds me of like when you put a magnet too close to a TV. That sort of like rainbow spectrum uh, <laughs> effect that happens. So yeah, it does feel kind of ambient in that sense. Yeah, and it, it sort of removes, like, the intentionality from it for me. I feel like maybe this would just happen with anyone E.T. was around, and it's not it's not totally in his control. Now, sexually, I still think he's, he's troubling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take that away from us. Um, I have a miscellaneous writing thing, if, uh, if 
we're doing yeah go notes. for it um i i was i was keeping a list because i was just really noticing it I, I don't know is there a literary word for this maybe mark where where you because you don't want to just say the character's name again and again you don't want to just say et did this et did this oh. when you use like little description phrases instead like the voyager uh, i don't know if there's a word for that mm. I mean, I wish I had kept a list of the number of two-word phrases he used to describe ET. Well, I've got it. Because there's like a thousand. <laughs> yes, um, John, yes. So here we are. Um, and then I, I do Let's like do this. These are, these are, yeah. Um, so here are Cotswinkle's descriptors for E.T. Um, the senior scientist, the old traveler, <laughs> the lost voyager, the elderly botanist, the old computer wizard, <laughs> the extraterrestrial, of course, the space elder... <laughs> The Cosmic Voyager, the Ancient Pilgrim from the Stars, the Age-Old Plant Doctor, (laughs) the Ancient Cosmologist, the Venerable Doctor of the Cosmos, the Aged Space Hero, the Ancient Guest, um, this (laughs) sawed-off, finely-tuned, ages-old, innocent creature of the sky... Uh, and my favorite when he gets into the, the six pack of beers, the drunken old goblin. <laughs> that's uh, that's a hell of a business card. <laughs> Just say ET. It's okay. Just say the alien. There was a, like I only got halfway through, and by that point, I was like, "Oh my god, my dude! Like you gotta stop with these." It was too much. <laughs> he does it more than once a paragraph. Sometimes yeah. it's it's wild. Well, it's just that thing. If your character doesn't have a name, mm-hmm. then what do you do? You know, you you have to kind of mm-hmm. reach out. These are just you know, these are nouns. These these are just the nouns for for what he is. So, I kind of feel sorry for Cotswinkle because you know, if ET was called Fred or whatever, then he'd be able to fall back on Fred. And it's one of those things that the eye glazes over. You don't see it when you're you're reading the novel, so it doesn't. But when you have to have these elaborate descriptions, because he can't refer to himself as E.T., because he's, you know, that's what the kids call him. So he's kind of um, painted it. You've got a, a point of view pro- protagonist, essentially, who is unnamed. Um, but you're writing in the third person. So you, yeah. it's it's really tricky. I do feel for him there. But yeah, maybe. He and even to yet. say <laughs> the alien or the creature, that would be putting a perspective on it like he wouldn't think of himself as an alien like so it is, yeah no, he is exactly, in a tough spot yeah. Yeah. where this really bothers me is like film criticism where people will run an article where they where they go we interviewed Sam Raimi about Doctor Strange and then in the article they'll say Sam Raimi said this and then in the next sentence they'll go the drag me to hell director it's like <laughs> come on this is cumbersome please stop <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, once the kids have named him E.T., I could accept more references to E.T. as E.T. Mm-hmm. And Cotswinkle just kind of, like, leans in harder to his, like, very complicated descriptors, uh, which, yeah, are cumbersome. I think it's a bit. He's, silly. D- he's making a joke, right? <laughs> You're so generous. You're so <laughs> that one that John read was, like, six words long. One. Well, that one yeah. has to be a joke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially, like, correct me if I'm wrong, that one ends with, like, guy uh, like it ends with a it word was, um, that is this sawed off finely tuned ages old innocent creature of the sky creature of the sky yeah. i mean good god i think that, that one was in the context of like that wouldn't be too much alcohol for a human but for this it was <laughs> <laughs> oh when et's drunk speaking of the alcohol he sees on the tv screen that there's a horrible mining accident uh-huh, uh-huh. This was a, is this not another, in the movie? Another 
Grumpy is, choice for no reason. Wait, but he's helpful. No, no, Hannah. He's benevolent in this he is, choice. He heals them all. And it goes, all the miners are goes, wounded through. and they all leap to their feet and they're, yeah. Yeah, go, go. Through the tea? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let me find Which it. is also, hey, E.T., how about like you just the... send out a blast that cures all cancer? Like, do do some of that before you leave, well, please. This is this is where this is where wow. Lance would have come into his own at the end as his manager yeah. and sent him on tour like some televangelist, you know, <laughs> healing people in stadiums. So, you know, we missed out there. Yeah. I, I'm I'm flabbergasted by that. I think partially the the other book of ET that we've read I think makes it very clear that he can't heal people through the TV because mm. he has an impulse mm. to try and do that while watching. I think not a mining accident, but something that like would make movie. sense. And that I yeah, that's not in the movie, John. What are, what are the extent yeah. of his powers then? Like the fact that in this book he's like welding things with his fingers, which I think he does in the movie, so that's fine. But like, there's just like an expansion of what he's capable of that now I'm thinking is, um, I don't know, my head is spinning. <laughs> I guess on this. I one. floated the idea during the last novelization that because Et's race has a intimate relationship with plants which are sort of, which like feed animals, which feed other animals, that there's an argument to be made that E.T.'s race is like our creators. And mm. by that metric, I am now also standing by E.T. is Jesus. And <laughs> he should well, go around doing miracles. That's, uh, there's, there are a couple of shots, like there's one shot when, of course, you know, there's the joke in The Simpsons where um, Reverend Lovejoy talks about, you know, we all love that story about the man who died and then was resurrected. Yes, E.T., I love that little guy. Um, <laughs> there are a couple of shots. There's one shot where he sta- and he's draped in this kind of plastic and it looks like, you know, Jesus, saw the Sermon on the Mount with his heart glowing and, and his hands are in this kind of benedictory kind of pose. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and this, don't forget, it's Jewish director. You know, he's, he's, he talks about his kind of you know Jesus obsession in this film. But it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely there. Well, that's that, that there. image from I mean, like the poster with the two fingers almost touching is very evocative of like um, uh, what is it? God, God's creation of Adam, the Michelangelo yeah. painting. Chapel, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is what happens when you talk about something for like two hours. You reach, I guess it's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I think these are valid and true, but like we got there. <laughs> um, just just because I want to read it. Here it is. The news came on, spoiling the afternoon with an account of a mine cave in. The South Tunnel collapsed. A dust covered rescuer was saying into a microphone, "I think we have everyone out, but these men are in critical condition." A close-up of the injured miners was flashed to the afternoon world. The afternoon world? What? In his easy chair, what about time the zones? tipsy little goblin lifted his, fig- his finger. It began glowing pink. The injured men leapt off their stretchers. They threw their arms around each other, crying with amazement as they held up their healed arms and legs. The spaceman opened another bottle of beer. <laughs> <laughs> suggesting that you wouldn't done. normally do this and this is like it's miller time being reckless. <laughs> no john you touch on something great which is yes it seems like he's not normally that benevolent and this is like his drunken shenanigans in no world would i say that the et in this book is benevolent most of oh, the time yeah that is not how i would he's almost trying it. to pull a prank on these miners like <laughs> you thought you were hurt zoinks <laughs> Jeez, that's crazy. What a what a book. Jeez, <laughs> Louise. I just oh, wow. 
I just got a couple of miscellaneous things. I know yeah, we, me too. Yeah, <laughs> just do you want to do it? Do you, do you want to do a kind of quick? Mark, you do one. I'll do one. We'll we'll go back and forth. Okay, I just want to. Uh, we talked about sweets and candy at the beginning. Um, oh, I looked this up too. You yeah, looked it yeah. up. So you know, well, I mean, I knew about this anyway. The whole M and M's versus Reese's Pieces thing. So, uh, uh, oh, okay, okay. Because the the filmmakers, this again alludes to the idea that E. T. wasn't going to be a big hit, and uh, the filmmakers went to Mars and they said, uh, "We want to feature M and M's." In the movie, he picks up M&M's and eat them. And Mars said, no, we're not going to give you permission to use our candy. So they went to Reese's Pieces instead. And Reese's Pieces, you know, are featured in the film. And it's mentioned they're a tie-in, whole tie-in thing is advertising everything. So Reese's Pieces sales went through the roof. But it's still M&M's in the book. And in fact, there's a couple of bits that sound like they've come straight from the marketing department of Mars because there's a yeah, yeah. where he says the, the, the elderly space traveller followed picking up each M&M and swallowing it down hungrily this was the food of the gods of kings of conquerors were he to survive this ordeal on earth he would bring a sample of this miraculous food to his captain for with its vast universes it could, could, could be crossed in supreme flight so you know this is like this is nectar yeah. of the gods kind of food and Eminem is still in the book but it's Reese's Pieces in the movie so it's just one of those weird little bits of trivia I wonder why they don't need permission to put it in the book because they didn't get it I guess. well you, you, can, you, you can say it, the thing is with um, with movies everything has to be cleared legally with a book if it's some you know if someone sits down and has a can of coke or whatever it's fine right. There's no, there's no derogatory statement in there. If if Elliot ate an M M&M and M and choked to death, <laughs> you've got a serious problem. No, because it's uh, we did a whole episode of the podcast about this about the legal things you can and can't say in books. So if it's if it's quotidian dust stuff, is it's everyday stuff? Mm-hmm. If someone you know has a Budweiser to drink and that's fine. Even if they have a Budweiser to drink and they get drunk and maybe get aggressive, that's kind of fine because that happens. You can point to that and say that happens in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but when anything is like that is in a movie, you can have it in the movie and you know. Because it's Coke or whatever, it's a recognized brand, that's fine. It's their trademark, so it pays to get, get clearance. It's like if anyone wears baseball stuff, a baseball cap, it has to be cleared by the you know the, the, the NBA team. or whatever, oh, yeah. or whatever it's in the base, baseball association. Um, so it's, uh, you know, just for legal reasons, you know, where there's a hit, there's a writ. You know, whenever there's a hit, <laughs> someone will come after you. So you need to clear all of those things. Whereas in books, it's completely different. The, the one thing... Um, Sorry to jump over you, Andrew, but the no, other thing is no, is fine. music lyrics in this, um, which is another thing we yeah. we talked about. We have an episode of podcast called Legal Eagles, which is in the eighties. People like Stephen King were constantly putting rock lyrics in their books, and they generally weren't getting permission because rock bands didn't care. They were making so much money from records and albums and CDs and what have you. And that all changed in the 90s. Suddenly, they got very litigious. You weren't allowed to use, because it's copyright infringement. Whereas this has on page 16, it has songs from a uh, lyrics from a song called People Who Died by the Jim Carroll Band, which mm. I, I wasn't familiar with. I, I listened to and it's kind of a post-punk band. But on page 81 in my version, they have um, the wrong lyrics yes, to Elvis Costello's this, yeah. Accidents Will Happen. Now, Accidents Will Happen it is featured in the movie. Michael comes in singing the lyrics and there is an Elvis Costello poster on the wall. So he's clearly a fan. But they get the words wrong. And I wondered if that was deliberate because it's Accidents 
will happen but only hit and run in the book it's accidents will happen but it's only rock and roll and it's repeated again and again throughout later on yeah so it's just this weird thing of of music lyrics getting them wrong deliberately and but they do that later too. right for the jim carroll band uh etc's yeah. Yeah, on the just, tv uh the song, song it's like reach out and touch someone like it's like it's yes. almost reach out and touch. Oh, them. I like just they, assumed it was a completely different song. That that was them doing. I Depeche was wondering Mode. if it was that, but that was my my assumption. Now is right. they had to tweak the lyrics. Yeah. Wait, no, John, I don't think that Violator was out in 1982. I'm pretty sure that album came out in 1990. Oh, okay, all right, you got yeah. me. Never yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, as I said in a previous episode. The Death on the Nile trailer sent me into a Depeche Mode tailspin. <laughs> I've been listening to a ton of Depeche Mode for the last five months. He- here's something. Okay. Uh, so this is when they realize that E.T. knows how to talk, but this is not why I'm reading this. You know how to talk. She dragged, she dragged him along after her into her mother's bedroom, where the extraterrestrial picked up the full wave of the willow creature. It was lovely at the center, but edged with loneliness. Young willow creature, Mexico is just a blip in the much greater screen, and there is a handsome admirer nearby. He looked out the window and saw her, just pulling into the driveway and parking, near her vegetable garden. A kindred soul, after all, was she not? Loving vegetables as he himself did? Was this not the basis for a more extended, more intimate relationship? (laughs) Dare he show his eggplantish profile to her? No, it seemed insane. She could not understand his presence in her son's closet. It would be too difficult to explain, even in his newfound mastery of her language. Yeah, so. Uh-huh. That's, uh, that's like, Elliot, uh, tell me about your mom. Like, <laughs> this, is, um, this is kind of weird because my wife is a gardening blogger and vlogger uh-huh. um, look up claire's allotment on youtube and online folks so and she has <laughs> had occasionally unfortunately you know weird guys send weird mm-hmm. stuff so it's uh yeah it's it's kind of oh. yeah this would have been leaving creepy comments on youtube don't you see we belong together we both love seeds right that's the argument more extended more intimate relationship like why'd you have to go there like Here we go. I got another one. 144. He peeked in Gertie's room and watched for a few moments as the child slept. She thought he was attractive, but to her, Kermit the Frog was a dashing fellow. He He is. He is. Kermit's Kermit's really hot. I played Kermit in high school. This Um, book hates Muppets. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So rude to Muppets. Yeah. Because you are great and charming, and I don't want to squish any of them. (laughs) E.T. Well, they've got their cute, squishy little faces. He crept on down the hall to Mary's room and peeked in. The willer, the willow creature was asleep, and he watched her for a long time. She was a goddess, the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. Her radiant hair, spread out upon the pillow, was the moonlight itself. Her fine features, so understated in their loveliness, were all that was perfection in nature. Her closed eyes, like the sleeping butterflies, upon the night-blooming narcissus. Her lips, the petals of the columbine. Mary, said his old heart. Then, upon paddle feet, he tiptoed over to her bed and gazed more closely. (sighs) She was the loveliest creature in the universe, and what had he given her? Nothing. He'd stolen her fuzzbuster. He gazed on as she turned in sleep, dreaming whatever dream she had, none of which, he knew, contained a pot-bellied old botanist from outer space. 
Go home, E.T. <laughs> E.T.'s being, like, legitimately predatory. <laughs> but it's also, like, it doesn't make, like, why is this, you know, like, little pear squash man, like, this is the perfect, most beautiful creature ever? Like, that just, like, it's it's creepy and feels like doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why would why would that be what he finds attractive? Like... Yeah. When he doesn't find the posters of half-naked yes. women on the boys' rooms attractive. Mm. He's like, that's not really for me. Yes, the it's all about this princess. suburban mom. <laughs> mm. Like, if he was like, oh, human women actually are great. I'd never seen one before. Maybe. I guess. Sure. But he's like so hyper-focused on Mary when certainly she looks exhausted and frazzled all the yeah. time. Yeah, for mm. certain unsavory types, I think that's like their type. Um... <laughs> Anywho, uh, but yeah, there is that funny moment where he, where they're looking at the models on the wall, and ET's like, "No, more like this," and he does like his own body yes. shape with his hands. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> and Elliot goes, "I don't think we have a lot like that." See, that would be cute. I'd find that charming if ET was like, "Oh yeah, I'm like horny for pear shaped space people, and like I think they're cute, and I want to go home and meet a nice alien girl." Like, sure, but yeah, it's just weird that he's fixated on. Their human mom. <laughs> yeah. But he actually makes the shape with his hands, doesn't he? he yeah. Does yeah, he does. Cool. He does yeah. do that, which, which is then just <laughs> contradicted by the fact that he lusts after a human woman for the entire book. <laughs> I can't believe that's not even so a little bit in the movie. Upsetting. That's wild. Uh, uh, yeah. Twinkle had ideas. The, the, only, oh. the only other stuff I got in my notes is uh, there were one or two sort of key differences from the film. We we already talked about the deleted scene with Harrison Ford as the principal. Mm-hmm. The deleted bath scene, which was reinstated for the 20th anniversary version and then taken out again. They did a whole uh, scene where uh, E.T. has a bath. That's in the book, uh, so that's not in the film, John. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the bit where uh, in the movie, when Elliot is kind of drunk at the same time as E.T., uh, in the in the movie, he kisses a young Erica Elaniac, who's the girl who pops out of the cake in Under Siege. Hmm. So uh, what? Fans. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, that movie—they don't have any chemistry for the whole movie. Because she mm. ends up being the one that is like running around with Seagal, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. She's like the yeah, female yeah, yeah. lead. They yeah. don't have any chemistry the whole movie. They're just running around being like, should I shoot over here? We're, we're in danger. And at the end, Seagal Sh- kisses her, and it seems not consensual. Oh, in it's the horrible. Like it, <laughs> oh, no, like- it's, it's horrible. It's <laughs> like she's the only woman on a ship of, you know, 500 sailors or whatever. It's, it's really horrible. But she does um, not act like I want this kiss at all. Like, the actress doesn't give anything to that scene. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not good. Um, but in the, in the, in the movie... The film that E.T. is watching is The Quiet Man, John Ford's movie, where you got that scene where the wind's whipping around and John Wayne takes her by the and kisses her, and it's this classic scene. Uh, and again, I th- it, it gives me a clue that this is an early version, he's working off an early version of the script and hadn't seen the film, because in the book it's just a cheesy soap opera. Mm-hmm. So there's little clues like that all the way through. Um, but yeah, that's uh, this is a weird book. It's kind of, it's been... It's, it's been it's exhaust. It, I I really enjoyed it. I think the choices he's made. This isn't your regular cheap knockoff tie-in novel. This is someone who's you know had real fun with this in a very dark, 
way <laughs> but i did i did ultimately enjoy it i enjoyed coming back to it let's launch into final thoughts mode here hannah blackman yar you are a nerd <laughs> no, everyone in your life thinks that you are extremely annoying and nosy mm-hmm. and embarrassing sure yeah mm-hmm it's hard for me to put myself in that headspace, you know, because I'm very cool and interesting and beautiful. But okay, I'm going to work on that. What if I went from there to being like, and and with that in mind, could you do the first scenario? <laughs> <laughs> that would be mean. Um, okay. <laughs> me trying to undercut that just makes you be like, oh, no, we're going to make it worse for you. Yeah, I get it. I get it. That's you. Fine. We're friends. Notice. We're friends, uh, technically. You notice? No, we're, we're we're we have a deep, rich friendship that I find uh, endlessly rewarding. Thank you. You notice that your friends, that you consider friends, but they would never call you the same, are right because I'm an unbearable nerd with what mm-hmm. appears to be an extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. You are begging this friend to introduce you to the extraterrestrial, and he says, right. "I will only do so if you recommend to me a book." That gives me utmost joy. Would you recommend the first half of <laughs> William Cotswinkle's <laughs> E.T. the Extraterrestrial? Um, generally, yes. I think, as we've discussed, it's just fascinating. It's just such an, an interesting thought experiment of, like, how could you take this movie and just really do something totally different with it? Um, and I think it's well-written, and it's fun to read. Like, I, I did want to finish it. It's not like I was, like, dragging my feet, having a bad time. I, you know... So yeah, I would recommend it to my group of friends who seem like they like fantasy and adventure, and I think they'd be into it. And into, and they're teenage boys, so they'd probably be into like the horny elements <laughs> of this. Like, I think it's a win-win-win for that friend group. Yeah, would recommend. Mm-hmm. Okay, Hannah, pick up the baton. Okay, John Goodman, you are a voluptuous single mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you're having a hard time dating, but it's not because you're not beautiful, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. you should know that you're good-looking and people like you. You are approached by a awful little squash man <laughs> who is horrifying <laughs> and disgusting. <laughs> and maybe he's been hanging out with your kids too much, and there's a lot of elements here. But mainly, he's hot for you, and you're like, well, I was almost willing to marry my horrendous boss just to get him out of my hair. So maybe I'll give this guy a consideration. But you want to get to know him a little bit. You want to know what his taste is. And you ask him, you know, would you recommend a little book for me just to know what your deal is? And he comes back to you with E.T. the Extraterrestrial and His Adventure on Earth by William Cotswinkle. Would that recommendation win you over? Like, would you be like, that's a good enough book to marry this disgusting little freak? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know i think after flipping through it and and giving it a good read uh i would say yes to that proposal and and we'd cancel his phone call home and it'd be a nice alternate (laughs) ending um but uh yeah i would i i do uh i think i had a good time reading this and um it is knowing now especially that it is so different from the movie i think that is um totally a plus i think that like yeah especially if someone was a big fan of et um i think you'd have a really good time seeing this like uh, a different author's take on the same story from a very different perspective i think um it's uh yeah it's a nice it's a cool novelization i'd, I'd for sure recommend it i think um especially if you if you've already seen et and you like it i think um i i have fun reading these novelizations without having seen the movie because it's fun to sort of just like create it in my mind but with this it does sound like 
because it's so different. It would be extra fun uh, if you're a fan. So yeah, yeah, would recommend. I feel like you're going to watch the movie now and just already think he's a deviant. Yeah, probably. Probably, probably projected <laughs> in there. That's my glad to it, yeah. Um, can I do one? Yeah, oh, yeah, go for it, John. <laughs> cool, cool. Uh, okay, so um, so Mark, uh, you, are, you are a cucumber. Um, you are <laughs> living your little cucumber life in a vegetable garden, being tended to by a nice mom, uh, when suddenly a, a ancient being uh, who has a telepathic connection with all plant life arrives, uh, and he's scared, he's lonely, he, he, he doesn't know where his people are, uh, and you just want to comfort him, you want to give him some advice, you want to maybe recommend a book to him that he might be able to relate his experience to, would you recommend E.T. the Extraterrestrial in His Adventure on Earth by William Kotzwinkel to this alien? Absolutely. I think for alien life forms, this is the equivalent of the road less traveled mm-hmm. or um, Zed and the Art <laughs> of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a, it's a great self-help book confronting many <laughs> dark issues uh, that alien life forms have to confront over their 10 million year uh, existence. So absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I the reason I wanted to talk about this book above all others uh, for novelizations is is you know it it's its own thing it's brave mm-hmm. enough to be its own thing and and Cotswinkle's you know put his stamp on it it's his book um so yeah I, I I would definitely definitely recommend it as a perhaps not as a lifestyle guide <laughs> but maybe as a how not to do things because once he sees it on the page uh, it will be there in black and white, and you'll think, "Oh gosh, maybe, maybe I need to tone down the <laughs> staring at people while they sleep and leaving M and M's on their pillow and, and and that kind of behaviour." But uh, I just want—I just want to end with one one little line that I've—I haven't been able to squeeze in anywhere else, but it made me laugh. And uh, it's on page hundred thirty-three of of my edition. It says, "Once he had been part of the workings of the Great Wheel." had been allowed to witness the miracles of the universe, had seen the birth of a star. Now, he stood in a four-by-five closet with a stolen umbrella and a stuffed Muppet. <laughs> good. good stuff. It's just lovely inner voice. Yeah. I, I do think Cotswinkle has a really beautiful way with words when he chooses to. Like, he's at certain points being like, I'm just making jokes here. This is a joke paragraph. But then every once in a while, he's like, I write beautifully. Yeah, I love his cosmic stuff. Yeah. yeah it does make me wonder how long he had to write this. Because there's stuff in here that feels a bit first draft, mm. that feels a bit placeholder, mm-hmm. that if he'd come back to it, like the names for the wizened old space traveler and, and that kind of thing. You'd go back and a copy editor would go, you know what, you've said this eight times, so maybe whittle it down to two. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I'd, I'd be fascinated to find that out, which hopefully I will. When yeah, I Mark, have you read the Book of the Green Planet before or will it be the first time? No, that, that'll be my first time. Yeah, can't Fine. wait. Yeah. I have been on the ride at Universal, which was terrible. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, it was one of, one of these things that, you know, we went to, we did the whole Florida thing a few years ago when the kids were the right age. And my wife hates fast, speedy rides. So she couldn't, you know, she couldn't go on any of the fast ones. So she loved, in Disney, she loved It's a Small, Small World. And she loved the E.T. ride because it's so calming and gentle. Um, I'm going around thinking, thank 
God, Spielberg never did a sequel because it would have been awful. There was no ET <laughs> e. feels like a one and done. It really, really does. So I'm fascinated to see what this has more of the terrible alien language. Oh, the uh, I mean, there's someone called. Just so worried that his whole culture is like kind of gross and pervy, <laughs> and I'm gonna yeah. just have to read like 200 pages of various goopy splash aliens doing weird things to each other. <laughs> yeah, for kids, for kids to read. There's someone called Flop Gloppel. Oh. Oh, wow. No wonder E.T. never tells them his name. It's probably gross. (laughs) Flop Gloppel. Hannah, do you have any other questions before we get out of here? Oh, am I going to ask you a question? I need to be asked a question. Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to ask (laughs) you a question. Um, Let me see here. Andrew, you are a government doctor. (laughs) classic <laughs> yep and you're used a lot of to school. a lot of school yeah you're very smart and you've worked really hard okay and you really believe in the sanctity of human life mm-hmm. and how much like your job is to save human beings right that's really your 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 big goal in the world right mm-hmm. and like you work for the government and sometimes they call you in to like top secret whoopsies things you have to help people with chemical burns that kind of stuff so you're used to a weird situation okay Then you get called into this house in suburban California, and the boss there says, like, hey, this is super confidential. The person you're going to be helping is a little weird, but we promise it's worth your time as the top most government doctor, I assume, is how high you've climbed in the ranks, okay? (laughs) You are, are like, the the pinnacle. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Then you walk into the room, and you see a disgusting little alien. (laughs) And you're like, that's not a human being. I refuse to help this thing. I hate it, right? It's foul. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, that's not my code. My Hippocratic Oath does not apply to little nightmare <laughs> creatures from the sky. I can do harm to that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I would like to. I don't like that. <laughs> At which point, the guy in charge, who wears a lot of keys, hands you E.T. the Extraterrestrial and His Adventure on Earth by William Conswinkle and says, give this a read and let me know if it doesn't change your mind about helping out this little guy who we think is important. Would reading this book make you want to save E.T.'s life? First off, I just want to say, based on what I know about me, the government (laughs) doctor, uh, I think that I (laughs) slash he is not in defense of all human life. Given the way he talks about aliens, I think he probably has some prejudices within the human race as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, Uh, we'll spin it within the scenario I gave you, right? Do that thought experiment, maybe. This book would convince me to benevolently operate on E.T. the Extraterrestrial. For me, as a as a host of a novelizations podcast, I, this isn't like character-wise. It's not the the most rich book we've ever read. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not emotionally giving me a lot that the movie didn't. But it scratches that once upon a time in Hollywood itch where it's whoa novelizations can also be this way Mm. this is another mode of novelization that i'm sort of not used to it's fresh it's exciting for me which is partially building out the world but as i said in the in the intro i think also and i don't mean this negatively i think also willfully building against the world in certain ways just introducing things like horny et or whatever (laughs) because you can I mean, there's a there's a spirit to Cotswinkle that just seems to be, I because I can, 
as opposed to because it's rooted in the text. And I think the merit of that is that whatever he invents, even if it seems to come out of left field, he follows to its logical conclusion and he makes it a consistent thread throughout the whole book. So yeah, super interesting book. Really excited to see what he does with a story that is pure invention since it has no rooting uh, in a film. So big, big recommend from me. Uh, Mark Stay, thank you so much for coming yes. on to our show. Thank you. Oh, this was wonderful. It was so great to have yeah, you. Yeah, you bring a great perspective. So much it's been an absolute joy. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've, uh, it's, um, this feels like some kind of therapy that my <laughs> 10-year-old self who read this book would have appreciated at the time. That, uh, it's, um, but no, it's been, it's been great. I, it's an honor to come on the show. And uh, it's great that someone is talking up novelizations in such a way because it it's a very unique art form, usually born from panic and chaos and uh, scrabbling around for whatever bits of information you can get. So um, it's great to read such a unique book as well. So thank you. Of course. Now, you know, you have a number of different projects and one of them is a book that came out nigh seven days ago so do you want to tell our <laughs> listeners about that and uh what's what's that universe like and and what else do you have on the ball yes well it's uh the series is called the witches of woodville and the new book is called the ghost of ivy barn and it's the third book in the series and it's a series set in kent where i live in england the garden of england is kent which is where the, the battle of britain took place over us in 1940 mm-hmm. and these books uh, the first three of them are set in 1940. And it's about a, a young girl called Faye who discovers that when her mother died, she left behind a book of magic and spells. And she is a witch and she can she has magical powers and has to learn how to use them. So as well as the war going on and rationing and dogfights overhead, there are supernatural threats as well. So the first book was The Crow Folk, which were these scarecrows come alive, come to the village after her book. The second book was called Babes in the Wood, which was uh, sort of about demonic possession and, and Nazi spies. And the third one, Ghost of Ivy Barn, uh, she discovers the ghost of um, a Polish uh, hurricane pilot uh, in her friend's farm barn and he doesn't want to go he doesn't want to give up the fight so she's got to kind of convince him otherwise and while that's going on there is um, the witches are gathering and there's a ritual that they're going to do on the white cliffs of Dover to repel the Nazi invasion this is based on something that actually happened it happened in the new forest a few hundred miles away but um, there was a, a uh, a wizard called a uh, druid called uh, Gerald Gardner who gathered together a bunch of witches to do a cone of power spell to repel the Nazi invasion. So it has this little ounce of reality in it. But um, yeah, it's, I, I pitched the series as the last 10 minutes of bed knobs and broomsticks uh, kind of stretched out for a, a, a whole series. Um, so you've got, you know, You've got three witches. You, they're fun. There's lots of comedy in these. Lots of magic. And in this fine, in this third book, Faye has to learn how to fly. I'm working on books four and five at the moment. Um, so Simon and Schuster have ordered two more. And my dream would be to go through the whole war with Faye and the witches, and um, and maybe beyond that as well. So if you enjoy a bit of magic, if you like sort of English British idiosyncrasies. Um, and you enjoy that kind of Second World War milieu, then you might enjoy these. That sounds really great. Wow, I didn't realize we were doing a a puff piece for your um your publisher this whole time, Simon <laughs> Schuster. 
because they, you know, yeah. well, they have good about... taste. They're publishing good stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they, they've been doing great work since 1982. <laughs> 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 well, uh, for, in the in the real world, seven weeks will pass uh, until we record this next episode. But to our listeners, Mark will be back with us in just a week with E.T. The Book of the Green Planet by William Kotzwinkel. Um, Can't wait. John, me. Is there any news on your podcast, the Exit Interview Podcast, the Improv Podcast? Is that coming back? Uh, it is. It is. We don't have a date just yet, but um, yeah, stay tuned, cool. folks, for, for Exit you. Interview. Uh, <laughs> it's a uh, fun little uh, comedy podcast. We do little little improv radio plays every week, and uh, it'll when this comes out, it'll be coming back soon. So catch up on the backlog now. John, I described the premise of your podcast to someone recently, which is that the uh, you know God and the devil weigh the soul of someone, mm-hmm. and that it's an improv podcast. And the person I was talking to thought that I meant that you inv- invited real celebrities on who improvised with you as themselves. And I'm obsessed with this concept uh-huh. because it it involves episodes ending. With you being like, thank you so much for yucking it up with us, Terry Gross. We believe you belong in hell. <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> we considered doing that of like, oh, do, will the guest, maybe the guest plays themselves. But it just like, because it's improv, like, obviously they would become such a different version of themselves anyway that it's like, maybe right. easier to start from scratch and avoid exactly, yeah, consigning a real person to eternal damnation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to our listeners... Please rate our pod, cla- blah, blah, blah. Gleeble glorp. <laughs> to our listeners, please rate our podcast. Please review our podcast. Please tell your friends, you know, the word of mouth. It's really, it's really how this podcast thing goes around. When I see pe- people post about podcasts, it's like everybody's always posting about podcasts. That's not convincing me. Come up to me on the street and tell me it's good <laughs> and that you'd be sad if it went away, that you'd become <laughs> dependent on it. I want to be like a, like a teat. That, that you suckle on. Um, oh my I might, god, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I might cut that. I've just been hanging out with this E.T. guy too long. Um, he's... He is infecting you with perversion, and I hate to be the podcast's number one prude, but you gotta get some help. <laughs> All right. As always, I'm gonna end the podcast with a uh, passage from a classic piece of literature, and uh, please do tweet at me if you recognize what this is from. Uh, so here we go. Nick walked up to his good friend. I've discovered your mysterious past that funds all the huge parties you throw all the time. Oh yeah, said the great Gatsby. (laughs) And what is it? Well, you took a beloved children's movie and you made the titular character into an absolute pervert. Yeah, said the great Gatsby. And I'd do it again. Not if I send you to jail first, <laughs> said Nick. So go ahead, tweet at me if you recognize what that's from, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>